Welcome to a special presentation of the Intermediate Line podcast. I'm your host, Chris Adams, and I will be irregularly recording conversations with some of my favorite fly tires from around the world. Sit back as we go a bit beyond face value and chat about the why and the how of some great flies. Brought to you by Nervous Water, Caterfly Apparel, and Australian-made Beats Brushes. Please enjoy the show. Welcome back, folks, to yet another episode of The Intermediate Vice. And I'm joined here today by my friend Nick Stewart. How are you, Nick? Good, Chris. How are you, mate? I'm good, thanks. Hey, uh, before we get into it, I just want to say thanks to everyone who um, offered positive feedback from the last Intermediate Vice, and I think we're sticking with that name. The last episode with Andy Bolch went really well. We got a lot of feedback in regards to people that found it um, good and easy listening and informative. So, you know, like, uh, I think we'll stick with it for a bit. So, um, here we are in episode two and, uh, I, like I said, I appreciate you joining me, Nick, but did you listen to the last one? I did, mate. Yes, I did indeed. Yep. It's always good to listen to Andy Rabbit on. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I know I'm putting you on the spot when I say, did you like it? Because you're not going to come onto a podcast and say to someone, I hate this podcast and um, I'm glad to be here. But, uh, um, I hope you got a bit out of it too, but you can sort of see where we're going with this um, show, right? No, look, I mean, it's fly times. Uh, uh, Andy touched on this. I mean, he says you know it's a massive part of the thing, uh, of, of the whole fly fishing scene, and it's it's definitely. I mean, it, it consumes me when I get stuck into it. I get absolutely enthralled in what I'm doing. So yeah, yeah. Well, uh, listeners will be probably interested to know that um, the reason why. Uh, well, let me go back a bit. As I mentioned in the last one, and as the intro suggests, this is an irregular um, occurrence, this show. So there's no promise of, of regularity of a weekly show or fortnightly show. But um, but getting back to what I was saying, listeners will be probably interested to know that I've grabbed you, Nick, because A, Andy nominated you on the last show, uh, which I was excited, about, excited to hear, actually, because uh, mm. there is an aspect of your flight time I think that a lot of people would like to know. It's quite different to the mainstream. Mm-hmm. But sure, also, yeah. you are in preparation for a uh, a trip to to Yucca-Bee. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So on Friday, so a mate of mine's driving down from. He's actually in Brisbane now from Mount Isa. Um, this guy I grew up with, uh, fly fishing with, mm-hmm. um, named Carl, and um, we're heading down um, on I think Craig Sparrows on Friday morning, like probably three o'clock in the morning. We're leaving. So big drive down. It's about fourteen hours down, um, which is a, a bit long more than that, isn't it? Uh, no, it's, well, I'm going Google Maps. It's about four to fourteen and a half hours, I reckon. So yeah, I've um, I've, I used to live at Jindabyne, which I know is not far from Yucabine, I suppose to a degree, a little bit, yep. a couple of hours yep. apart. Uh, it used to, from the Sunshine Coast, it used to take me twenty-two hours to drive straight through without a without a break. I don't want to tell you. I'm just going on Google Maps. <laughs> <laughs> it might be it might, might be a different story these days. It but used to be a um, back in the day, it was um, a Gregory's fold-out map. You would get from oh, the right. service station when the edge of the map ran out, you know? But, yeah, um, yeah. So, no, I, um, it's, I know the, um, uh, the inland highways, um, I reckon, 15 and nearly 15, 16 hours. But, yeah, the inside, uh, down the coast, straight down um, around Sydney and all the rest of it, I reckon, 14 and a half hours, give or okay. take. I mean, yeah, basically, I'm allowed sort of up to about 15 hours for the drive. Well, I've done it. I did it with me, Mrs. Um, going back in 2000. But- Sorry, let me just interpret for international people. What Nick just said there when he says, I did it with me missus, means 
I I I did what we're talking about with my uh, partner in life, my wife. Or, yep, that's yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Sorry, nothing about applications. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, me, me and my wife did it um, back in I think it was 2015. I'm yep. pretty sure it was 2015. We did the drive down um, in her little Hyundai RX35, um, which was a bit of a mission. Um, being it was only got a 50 litre fuel tank, so we were stopping quite regularly to get fuel and all the rest of it. But yeah, man, it's um, uh, I've been madly time flies. I'm one of these people who I've been trying to teach myself a bit differently. I don't know whether you follow this same sort of mantra when you go out in the water, you try to sort of have your group of flies that you know will work or at least you think will work very well. And mm-hmm. then you sort of adjust accordingly as you need to, obviously, on the day, but you try not to take out every cat and the dog in your backpack, if you know what well, I mean, which is. I'm sometimes the latter, and I'm, I really try to train myself out of it, believe me. Yeah, yeah, I completely understand. Um, I'd like to highlight for the listeners um, the reason why, well, the, the, the fly tying aspect as the reason why, well, one of the reasons why I got you on, I suppose, but um, your style of fishing dictates your styles of flies. 100%. And um, can you elaborate on what that is? Sure. So, um my trout fishing now um, has just about become exclusively swinging down and across. So as opposed to um, even just straight streamer fishing, which is often casting sort of up in angles or straight across the river, down and across is at the very most a 90 degree cast across the river and then swinging your fly down and like basically right the way down to mm. perpendicular. Um, so it's all double hand fishing, sometimes single hand fishing, depending on your you know how big the river is and all that sort of stuff and also the size of the fish as well. But for the most part, I'm using um, what's marketed these days as uh, trout spray uh, gear, which is um, like a you know 10 foot to 11 foot or even 11 foot six, uh, four and five weight rods, um, and throwing short lines, short heavy lines, which uh, will turn over heavy sink tips. Um, I don't do much of this. I have done the summer uh, like the summertime fishing, which is a bit higher in the water column. But most of the, the the cold time fishing, which is what I'm doing this time around, obviously, because it's quite cold down there now, um, is is all fishing deep. So the fish are sitting tight on the bottom and you're trying to get your flies down in front of them. They're quite lethargic. Like, they will move, but you sort of got to convince them to do it. So okay. all, And all the flies that um, uh, I'm throwing, it's also the, the gear is dictated around those flies as well in, in that it's not easy to throw. If we were throwing small streamers, so if you think about, like even relatively speaking, like a bass streamer, which might be say a, a bass vampire, they're quite a light fly and they're relative. They don't have much bulk to them. They're basically a variation on a crazy Charlie. I know I'm simplifying the hell out of that and don't take any insult to it because I know there's more to it than that. But um, the pattern in itself is a top wing with some lead eyes and a body and a bit of a tail. Mm. Um, so there's no fundamental bulk to them, whereas the flies I tie can and, and do indeed um, throw quite a large circumference on the front of the fly if you're looking at them head on. Um, and just sometimes getting them to pop out of the water, you need the gear to do it. So that's why I use the sort of um, the, the heavy short lines, which turn all this stuff over. All right. Uh, yeah. No, gotcha. Okay. So no, I see what you're saying. So, I mean, without delving down the, the fishing aspect of it, mm-hmm. you know, we sort of, we sort of established that your, your style of fishing, it's not, it's not the single handed um, fishing that mainstream fly fishing, God, it feels weird to say mainstream fly fishing, but <laughs> mainstream fly fishing employs, you know, so you're, you're swinging flies with, um, Geez, for lack of a better term, spay techniques, right? Is that... 100%. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. okay. I, I, yep. I should have said that. Yeah, 100% spay techniques. It's just all, everything's 
been scaled backwards to, as I said, what what sort of marketed as trout spay. Um, yeah, no, that's that's all right. Sorry to interrupt yeah. you, Nick. I just I just want to um, generalise the fishing aspect of it because I want to get I want to get to the flies, you know. So it's um uh, and I want to I want to talk the fly tying in in regards to that as well. But um, mm-hmm. so forgive me, mate, for cutting you off there. But I think um, what we've got is a gist of um of what of the type of fishing that you do. And like I said at the beginning there, uh, your fly tying is dictated by your type of fishing, which is something that I personally like to see in fly tying. Uh, I, you know, like I mentioned on on the previous show, and I've done it many times on the Intermediate Line podcast, that uh, you know I'm, I'm a fan of fly tying for fly fishing as opposed to fly tying for fly sculpture. And that's one of the interesting things that I'd like to talk to you about, um, as I've mentioned several times you know, in the show already. Actually, yeah. I'm going to get to my point. Uh, <laughs> Is that uh, you know, like uh, your flies are um, are weird and unusual to a lot of people, and and including to someone like myself who's got a um, a healthy interest in fly tying. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, these flies are, are are strange. You know, I think that's I think that's a um, a pretty accurate way to put it. In, in saying that, all flies were strange to me at one stage, but yeah, I, I lean towards the ones that I know suit. Well, I guess we can compare it and say suit my style of fishing, my style of fly fishing, and and the species I chase. You know, so yep. so you're you're essentially you you're given a few clues away there about talking about uh, targeting or well, understanding your prey of what mm-hmm. it does in winter slash summer, and mm-hmm. um and designing your uh well your your tackle setup to suit that. But are you also um is that extending to your flies as well? Definitely. I mean, so. Uh... One of the, the main things, so I mean, uh, it, uh, I'll, I'll try and summarise, if I can, I'll try and sum, summarise the, the, the main group of flies, we'll call them, uh, that I use when I, and the ones I tie previous to the trips and stuff sure. like that. So um, they're, they're basically either tube flies, um, which I'll get into the details of this one more, but I'll just go over them briefly. So tube flies, yep. shank flies, standard hook flies, we'll call them, like standardised flies, like standard streamers. Um, and then... Basically, and then surface can be anything in between, basically, because I do actually swing on the surface as well, as in skate flies across the top. But we won't get into that part because that's more in the warmer time of year. But um, during the cold, it's basically tubes, shanks, and then just standard hooks. Right. So okay. The, so the if I'm trying to if I'm trying to really get down deep and and stay deep, I want my flies ticking along the bottom because, as you can imagine, a water a river is flowing. This is moving water. Um, varying speeds depending on it. it can change day to day with a bit of rainfall it can lift a river and jack it up a bit and move it up so i want my flies as i said as deep as i can get them without them being dead on the bottom so you don't want them smashing into the bottom and just staying put and then moving a little bit moving a little bit you want them ticking across the rocks so tick 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 and you'll literally feel it just making contact just making contact and that's when you know you're in the zone basically as far as i'm concerned okay so so if I'm trying, as I said, if the water's fast and I'm trying to do that, then I tie my flies and we're talking lead eyes. So the shank fly with lead eyes um, is as fast as it goes, basically. And I will tie a fly then very sparse as well. So even though some of my flies may presume or some people might look at them and think, wow, there's a lot of material there. It's actually the illusion of a lot of material. They're okay. very sparse in comparison. So they actually, uh, the, the whole, the, the look that I'm looking for and I sort of, uh, I was inspired by all the fly tires, like people like Ed Ward, Jerry French. Uh, these are all the American steelhead fishermen from over in the States and Pacific Northwest in those areas. Mm-hmm. They, they, they sort of, um, they're tying a lot of the, the, the tube flies and the shank flies that they make normally to imitate. Now, they're chasing fresh steelhead that are coming straight up out of the salt water. And a lot of their flies, 
for want of a better term, they sort of had this squiddy appeal, if you can mm. imagine. So sort of a, an umbrella type effect, right? Mm. So they use, um, a lot of the time, they're using ostrich and stuff like this um, as the bulk of their material. I use ostrich, I use rhea as well. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to, like, the whole idea is not to have just this bulk solid chunk of color or, mm. or mass through the fly. I want them basically the outer peripherals to have the, the pattern and design and any flash and whatever else. And the inside to basically be hollow. So similar to like a, I guess, a hollow fly of any sort, you know, any type. And yeah. so all the materials, uh, and the, the materials in their own right, and the reason and the way the way I choose these is, is because you're not, you're rarely imparting any action into the fly other than what the water is going to give you. So I'm not stripping and jigging. I'm not, I, I do flick my rod tip occasionally. Like if I get a bump and it doesn't get a follow-up, I'll sort of give it a flick to say, hey, come back and eat me. Otherwise, I'm literally just steering my fly across the water. I'm letting all the undulations and all the current pulses and all that stuff kick my fly around. So my fly has to talk for itself. Mm. I, I, it has to stand out from everything else that's down there that's trying to, and this is a clue as to how I tie my flies as well, everything else is trying to stay hidden and not eaten. I'm trying to stand out just a little bit above them. So I just want my fly to go, hey, look at me, when everything else is trying to stay buried in the rocks and, and hidden in amongst all the stuff yeah no that makes sense so i mean so breaking that down just quickly i suppose is you know you've you're understanding your prey you're uh you're you're, you're anticipating a reaction bite you know and and also you're uh you're you're making the materials move uh by working with their ta with them taking their path of least resistance through the water uh and in that circumstance you know when, when you're swinging a fly around you know or, or you uh, excuse my my um derogatory term here i suppose it's not really derogatory or lack of lack of a better term i should say dragging just dragging the fly through the water really but i mean and we, we all know there's a lot more, more more skill involved into that but essentially you know you're not you're not you're not um moving that fly through still water by any means as a as an extreme uh contrast you're yep. uh you know you're you're letting the um the the the, the weight of the water drag the fly line through the um through the water which is essentially pulling the fly along really so, yes that's a, i mean just yeah to simplify the hell of it that's exactly right i mean mm. it's it's as i said it's allowing all the currents i mean because water doesn't just flow in one direction when it goes down it doesn't just stray on a, a nice even mm. keel if you know what i mean it ups yep. and downs left and right it's you know ends and out so my fly is bump, bumping and winding all through that so if you've got a fly with uh, and the materials in that fly, I should say, if the materials in the fly, whatever it be, a tube fly, a bit of shank fly or a sand hook fly, they will all be sort of put to the test at that point. So it's either just going to look like a blob of crap coming through the water and it'll have a bit of, you know, it might have some pretty colours and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, imagine, so I mean, a clouds a minnow, which if, from all intents and purposes will catch fish in just about most situations if you're imparting the right action to it. That's mm -hmm. how, it, and so that's got it's got flash and it, it's got that nice jigging action and all that sort of stuff. Obviously by the lead eyes and all that sort of thing. But if I'm just dragging that straight through the water, there's very little resistance. It's a very slim profile fly, and it'll literally, other than maybe the flash kicking off a bit of something, and it might be subtle enough just to make them go, "Hey, what's that?" and go over and investigate. Or maybe it's something bright like chartreuse and white or something like that, which is a pretty standard clouds of color. And they go for whatever reason on that day they're going to crunch it. But more often than not that fly would pass through the water with very little interest from the fish because there's nothing to sort of make it go, hey, what's going on there? That looks alive. Whereas, as I said, those materials that I'm using, are, you know, marabou's, fox, you know, all this sort of stuff, rabbit, is all designed just to, even in the slightest, I mean, it's a slow pools, like some of the rivers, uh, sorry, some of the pools I fish down in that you can be, can be quite long and slow. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have much of a chance to sort of 
I mean, I could strip through it. I don't want to because it's not my preferred way to fish, but I need my flies to do everything it can do just literally by me steering it. By me, when I'm saying steering it, I'm literally guiding it. So I might see an undulation. I go, I want you to speed up through that, and I'll speed it up through it or I'll slow it down through that little part of the pool. Um, so you're right when you said before there's more to it than just dragging it through. But in, in simple terms, yeah, that's exactly what's happening. But the fly has to speak for itself or it, it just goes unnoticed literally every time. Tell me about your version of the clouser in, in that circumstance then i mean by that i mean clouser is this uh, you know like you said you, i mean i know you're very familiar with it you live in queensland i'm sure you've fished plenty yeah. of clousers um you know that you know the saying is that everything is a clouser what's yep. the um what's the what's the best way to determine it, uh, to to um to label these flies spay flies what's the what's the clouser version of a spay fly what's the spay fly version of a clouser i should say i would say probably something like a willy gun which is okay, a very so old. Tell me, yeah. tell me what that is. It's a, it's a very old spay pattern. Um, this is from back in the, you know, literally the river spay days, basically. And it still gets used over there you know, religiously, basically. Mm-hmm. But uh, the willy gun is tied with, um, oh, geez, I'm going to test my uh, material knowledge here. I think, uh, like, I know I've seen it tied with bucktail, and it's, it's a multicolored, multifaceted fly, basically, but it's not. Um, it's just a straight, uh, like the, the materials are tied 360 degrees around a tube typically. Um, and sometimes like a bottle tube, sometimes with just a straight brass tube, sometimes even just a plastic tube, depending on how heavy they want it to be, obviously. Um, but it's just uh, bucktail um, tied back at almost a sweeping angle back across the tube, basically to the back of the fly. So there's very little as far as movement goes. Again, the ends of it will sort of move around because they do. Yep. Uh, natural materials have that ability to move and again you've got very little flash inside the fly um but yeah that's so this probably is... sorry go on i'm sorry nick i didn't mean to interrupt you talk over time but, but essentially you're describing a um a, a bait fish or a smelt pattern right yeah exactly yep so okay i see what he's doing this so you you're you're assimilating the um clouds of being a bait fish pattern with with a with a bait fish spay pattern but is it is what do you call it a willy's gun did you say Willy gun, yeah. Willy gun, right. So, yeah. the, but the willy gun is it, um, you know, is it the sort of go-to fly? I mean, for, um, for most fishermen, like I mean, like even in this day and age, clouses have been around for such a long time. Um, it's this, it's the fly that beginners would would more than likely start out with, not only to fish on the water, but also to learn on the vice. Um, uh, but did, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'd probably say no. I mean, uh, as far as spay-type flies go, um, yeah, it, it's sort of – because, I mean, the, you, you've got two uh, sort of two schools here, right? So, I mean, imagine if you had uh, – I'm trying to draw a comparison to something that would be a bit more familiar. Um, so you've got, obviously, salt water here, right? So we could say baitfish patterns, crab patterns, shrimp patterns, right? Um, it would maybe be the mainstay of that sort of type fishing, right? Um, for – the freshwater side of things, you're sort of imitating, you're getting into insects as far as, I mean, even, you know, cicadas and stuff. We're talking bass fishing here. Sorry, I should have stipulated there. Um, it's sort of, that's what I'm saying. Like, it, there's that school. So, I mean, I do the trout side of things and I tie intruder style, uh, style flies. I tie, um, you know, uh, Zonka style flies, which are um, a streamer as well. They're leech imitations there. Sort of, they're covering. They're not a specific thing, if that makes sense. So, okay, where we could, so a caricature, a caricature of what they might find, enough enough to sort of entice a reaction and appeal to their uh, senses as far as vibration and 
Uh, it's and, a prey, yeah. It's movement, some, it's, yeah. Yeah, it seems edible and it's it's prey. That's all they see it as, basically. And, I mean, trout are very much, uh, at least, I mean, in the neck of the woods that I've fished in New Zealand and here are, are all very opportunistic and they will, they won't smash just anything that comes past them, that's for sure. Like, mm. uh, I mean, the atypical thing, I mean, most fly fishermen have heard of woolly buggers, mm-hmm. yeah? Um, so the woolly bugger is a mainstay of most people. I mean, and that fly doesn't necessarily imitate one particular thing. It imitates many different things. Mm. Um, and depending on the color combinations and obviously the profile of the hackle that you're using, all that sort of thing, how thick you make the tail, um, all those sort of things all will vary that fly to suit the conditions you're fishing. Mm. Um, so it, it covers a large variety of things. The intruders that I tie, um, I'm tying to match, like as an example, where I'm heading to Yukonbean, I'm tying to match the crayfish that are down there. So they're a very obvious olive color and they've got bright orange specks through them. So I tie mm. my flies with orange highlights through them, orange UV flashes through them. Um, gold is another color I mix in because it's very similar to orange in the water, especially when there's tannin stain around. Um, and yeah, so I'm sort of matching that sort of hatch. And I mean, obviously crayfish, when they're moving through the water, they swim backwards, um, as in when they're retreating from something, um, just like a shrimp would or a prawn. Um, and so my flies are sort of, uh, I'm, I'm using that color combination, but I'm definitely not trying to imitate a crayfish. I'm just using the color. That's the mm-hmm. only thing that I'm, I'm actually trying to do. And it's the same with when I use a Zonka style fly, which is a winged fly, obviously a, a big rabbit strip fly. Um, I'm, I'm using that as the, the, the mainstay behind what I'm sort of, uh, that's what I'm trying to imitate again, just the color. It's not necessarily that, oh, there's something that's got this kind of wriggly material all across its back, which would be a rabbit Zonka. It's not, it definitely doesn't look like that in the water, but the colors do. And that's yeah. just enough. I think that's enough to fish that, like to kind of fool the fish and to go, that's something for me to eat. Yeah. So it's either going to be, they're either going to run from it because they're quite large, the flies I fish as well, like relatively speaking. Um, like I, I've had people before, and especially over in New Zealand, who have come and had a chat to me on the river and they'll look at my fly box and they'll go, is that the size of the flies you're fishing? I'll be like, yeah. And they're like, like they, you know, spook the fish with that? Not at all. It's like they're either mm. going to eat it or they're going to run. Like they're either going to go, well, I'm going to crush that thing or they're going to go, I'm going to get the hell out of here because that thing's taken over. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that, and that's that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, that's why, this is why these sort of flies look quite weird to people, you know, like they look Definitely. strange. And I think strange is a great way to, um, to describe them because they're not, they're not a common fly. They're, it's not a common form of fishing. No. Uh, at least they're in, at least down here in the southern hemisphere in Australia and stuff. I know a lot of people are into it, but it's mm. not common. No, um, definitely, I agree. Yeah, so I mean, it, the, the size, the profile, the, uh, the 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 way it looks, then and even the materials are all quite strange. Now oh. you've you've spoken quite a bit in regards to, you know, I I know I threw a curveball at you and talked about the um, the spay equivalent of a clouser, but a couple of times you've come back to uh, an intruder and. Um, yep. You know, so you, you've just described, you know, we, we don't have to go over it again, like the, describing what you're imitating was in the Yabby and, and all that sort of stuff. But I want to talk about the, the, the tying aspect of it and um, and, and the approach that, that you take towards tying. I mean, it although the flies look strange, your flies are, are aesthetically very pleasing to look at, although most of us have no fucking idea what, what we're looking at, you know? That's, <laughs> sure. <laughs> It's uh so I mean like you can see the assembly of materials is um is neat purposeful, uh tapered in a certain way and you've got a um uh, you know like a, an arrangement that that um that does exactly what you said there you can tell by look most people could probably tell by looking at it that you've got a, a a fly that can bounce across the bottom with hook point up and you've also got materials that won't 
collapsed to be pencil thin, given the uh, the amount of amount of force of yep. water that that they're facing as they get yep. as they get swung. Mm-hmm. So, um, so break, can you break down the intruder for us? Sure. So, um, the intruder. So, the, um, uh, this was a fly that was basically. Um, uh, just a very brief history on it. Um, engineered in the states, as I said before, but for steelhead fishing, that's kind of where it all it all started. Um, and the engineer can be uh, sorry, the engineer, <laughs> the intruder can be defined as uh, more typically a two-station flight. Now, what I mean by that, and irrespective of whether it's tied, by the way, the the this, the the platform is tied on, be it a tube, a shank, or a hook, doesn't matter. That's entirely up to the tire. All right, okay. So, well, I've seen most of yours get tied on shanks, right? Yes, yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, so shanks and uh, shanks and tubes would be the the main forte of what I tie on. That's just my right. preference, but you can I, indeed I, tie them on hooks. Yeah. I want to get into tubes later with you. Sure. Um, yeah. but for now, when we're talking about the intruder, let's let's stick to to the to the shanked version, and yep, um absolutely. and yeah, let's talk about that. So yep. So tying that. Let's see how how do we do that? We don't need step by step, but just um, <laughs> just uh, just just yeah, if we can just break it down, what it involves, you know. So basically, what you're tying, as I said, is you've got um, for the most part. I mean, some people say and argue that a single station intruder is indeed one thing. I guess it is if it wants to be, but I tie Hold most. What, what's what's it? You said it's a, you said earlier it's a stage fly, then you said a single stage intruder. What does that mean? Just one one tie-in? Is that what single so stage one is? Collar. So if we if we think about if if I'm looking at this, the the profile of the fly on the side, basically, so it's got the rear end and then the front end. That's the first and sort of stational stage. One stage, two stage, right? So there, if it's a two stage, it's got a rear and a front stage at it or station. Okay, they're, they're the ones um, I mainly see you tie, right? Exactly, yeah. So my, like ninety nine point nine nine percent of my flies intruders, sorry, are tied as that two stations, basically a front and a rear station. Gotcha. Uh, and so the materials, uh, uh, so at the back, you've got um, the idea is you're trying to give. Um, I use. It sounds like I'm going to give a step by step here, but I'm not. Uh, <laughs> no, no, don't. No, yeah. I mean, describe it how you want, but don't be concerned about saying. This, and then you do this next. You know, no, just, no. just. So yeah. basically, what I'm doing is at the back there. All I want to do is is, is I want to give something that's got a lot of movement. Um, so this is I use silicon legs, rubber legs, whatever you want to call them, um, quite a lot, which are you know pretty standard in for spinner baits and all those sorts of lures that you buy these days you can buy buckets of yep. you've got really good ones on your side as well do you uh, do, do you prefer rubber or silicon in that respect um i don't mind that the silicon legs uh, and uh, all the ones i found at least the silicon ones tend to be round um and they uh, i actually find that the flat legs so you i guess square rectangular wherever you want to define them um mm. so the ones with the flat angles on them they actually kick around more in the water so I'm assuming that the water passes over them around the sharp angles. This sounds really wanky, but over them more so, if that makes sense. So it tends to kick them around a bit more. So you get, I think I get a little bit more movement out of the square legs as opposed to the round legs. No, that that's that is correct. I mean, you've got uh, if you if you've got a conical or a uh, a cylindrical taper because the round legs would be not tapered like a cone. Um, yeah. You know, you're going to get a, a, a pretty random action out of it. You know, whereas. Um, with the with the square legs, you should get if they're all flat and facing towards the rear, it should all wave like ribbons and not and not move interact with each other. You know, That's it. exactly. Shouldn't so, move sideways because there's yeah, no there's no there's no surface area to cr- attract any drag. No, exactly. So I mean, it's uh, so that's I mean, and, and that back station is is propped out with something. I mean, that that choosing of material can be a you know a simple feather, it can be a dubbing ball, all sorts of stuff. Um, okay. I mean, there's, there's a, a whole 
plethora of things on YouTube that, about tying the sort of rear station to prop your materials against. And that's the key with my flies, especially is is, uh, and we'll get into this. I'm I'm sure this is probably a question on the tip of your tongue about things like the composite loop. So the oh, rear station. Oh, sorry. sorry, just in regards to propping that stuff up. So are you um are you reverse tying these these? Like, so you're using a support material, whether it be a pillow. Um, that by that I mean, like for people who don't know, like the um, the fluffy bit or the softer bit of a like a, a hackle, you know, like just a, a ball dubbed onto a bit of thread and ran around, or a bit of a feather that might be hackled on, so uh, some sort of natural support material, and then damming those legs so they're so they're because because I know that our consideration here is to have these to have these materials stand up and not not uh, go pencil thin in the water, so Absolutely. that's why you're that's why you're propping this stuff up. So, exactly. so yeah, so it's it's literally that rear hackle that you said before. So it'd be like literally a fe- though natural is my definitely my choice. I, I mean, I use normally a dubbing ball. It's mm-hmm. it's support. So it's all in stages of support. So if we just focus on the rear station for a second, mm-hmm. I'll literally tie in normally a dubbing ball to support the hackle. So that means that the, even if the hackle does want to collapse in really heavy water, let's say it just hits a punch of water that's really really strong for some reason, mm-hmm. the hackle won't just go thump. It's got something that's actually keeping it propped up as well. Yep. So plus it's a trigger point on the fly yep. so it's like i'll normally use like a again like uv orange uv red stuff like that. oh okay yep yeah like a hot um, spot exactly yeah and just a ball of that at the back and it's i mean we're talking it might occupy maybe a couple of mil on the mm-hmm. shank right so then i'm then as i said i'm then jamming a, a hackle in right behind that and i'll tie you know let's say from a, a standard feather i might use say two-thirds of it and i'll put a fair amount of that in i'll tie you know obviously touching turns wrapping tightly around and then palmer, you know, pulling back as I'm tying, trying to get as much of that feather in there without it being overdressed as well. Like there's obviously there's a line when you go, that's too far. And you want them to all naturally, as I said, have that sort of that umbrella prop. My silicon legs or indeed the square legs, the rubber legs are then tied back along the shank and obviously up against that feather so that they then stick out. Gotcha. And that, yeah, so that's basically, that's my rear platform then. You know, the rear station, sorry, rear station is then tied. So I've got those silicon legs, and I know that water's going to kick those around all over the place. And there, I mean, you know, obviously the legs are tied in. They're trimmed down to measure, basically. You want them – I'm not a believer in having the hook right at the back of the materials. I bring the hook up to probably about halfway up to the – you know, whether the rear um, rubber legs will go back. I bring it about halfway up into that. If I get okay. short, yeah, I just accept that. But, yeah. I was going to pick up on that, that you didn't mention setting up the hook first. Are you – are you um are you attaching this? Are you setting this up on a, on a shank, and then attach? Are you leaving yourself to be able to swap a hook out if you need to? So this this is a bit of a this is a spot of contention amongst people who tie shank flies. So mm-hmm. there's two methods of tying um, a shank fly, right? So the the standard method we'll call it, and this is one that most people would adapt to and go, this is fine, is um, using uh, your hook style is typically a what would it be like a suicide type hook. Okay, so the standard bait fish, approximately size six or four, would be the standard type hook that you would use for these type of flies. Um, I've got my own preferences, but that's what most people would lean on. And gamma cats who make them whatever octopus hooks, that would get you out of trouble 9.99 times out of 10. Mm-hmm. Um, now they're then either tied to, so you're then putting a piece of like looping a, a piece of either wire, so nylon coated wire. Um, or indeed um, a braided line, like um, if, if people are familiar with the different types of braids. If I do do this, um, and sorry to jump around a bit, but if I do tie a, a shank fly with a, indeed a hook trailing out, as a trail hook as I call it, a hook trailing out the back on line, mm-hmm. I prefer to use fire line. I use 30-pound fire line 
um, which 30 pound file on you could pretty much cut down your backyard with as far as a whip snipper goes um, and a whip snipper for all your overseas people is a is a weed eater is that what they call them overseas yeah weed whacker weed eater yeah <laughs> so yeah yeah, yeah. But, yeah but it's still fire line is still a, a fused line right it's still a definitely yeah, yeah. But it's, the point being is it's not limp right so it's it's a stiff braid relatively speaking like i can if i pull out a length of it say approximately five inches of, of fire line and hold it out from my hand it'll bite under its own weight it'll go no problem it'll hold straight out erect basically whereas if okay. i use if i gel use a piece of say yeah gel spun it'll just go soft and, and hang so yeah. what what that can lead is to tangles and all sorts of mess that's why i go for that more stiffer type of line yeah. um however wire nylon coated wire um and off the top of my head it's been such a while since i've used wire that i actually can't remember the diameter um it's like 0.30 or 0.030 or something like that it's relatively thin like you can get them at uh, haberdashery shops as an example no we're not mentioning spotlight anymore <laughs> i didn't say spotlight like senyo's intruder wire it's it's not it's a seven strand or type wire yeah. right hundred yeah. that's exactly the right stuff yeah, yeah well um yeah. well uh, show sponsors got the arex and in, in, you know, wire in the in stock just letting people know you know there you go that's, yep yeah. that's, that's <laughs> <laughs> um so uh, yeah, and, and as I said, and then that's then basically bound down onto the hook. Um, uh, this is, sorry, and, and I should have actually covered this before. Well done for pulling me up on it, Chris. Um, that's bound down on the hook pre any tying. So basically this is all prep work. So I tie on my lead eyes first and indeed the, the wire and the, um, the hook, first of all, and glue it down and everything. So I use super glue, bind it down, super glue over the top, bind it down over the super glue. So I really get that, that glue in around all the things. I don't want the hook to get pulled out the back, basically. And as yet, um, for all the, the flies I've sold and all the ones I've used, as I tie for other people, et cetera, I've never had anyone say, hey, my hook's been pulled out. Um, so it's it, like some people look at it and go, really, that's going to hold? Yeah, absolutely. And I've caught some damn big fish on this and I've never had them pulled. Mm. So it's, it's hard to do. I think the, the super glue bites in the nylon, the wire, and indeed the braid absorbs it and all that sort of stuff. So it's pretty rock solves concrete what time it's done. Yeah. So that's, as I said, so that's the, the standardized way of doing it. Now, this is going to be hard to describe how I, how I prefer to do it. Um, and anyway, like, again, I'm not sure on the audience here, but if there's any old school and, you know, um, steelhead fishermen out there and they sort of followed um, the likes of Ed Ward and Jerry French um, when they were pioneering all this stuff way back in the day, um, they developed their uh, chew flow materials. This is going to sound like I'm bouncing around here, but chew flow materials were very hard to come by. Um, for the most part, it was a European trend. Um, and just getting into the States, I think, was a bit of a nightmare. So they sort of went, well, we like the idea of tube flies, but we also like the sink rate of shanks. So using Waddington shanks, as I call them, which that's just a type of shank. Don't get too caught up in that. Yeah. Um, and what they did is they said, well, um, we'll come up with our own way of doing it. So um, the, the concept of a... Ch uh, I'm going to have to go into the tube flies here. The concept uh, I, of a... Oh, go on. I was going to say, look, maybe I could... No, I don't mean I don't mean to get ahead, but like it's... You're basically saying that that tube flies weren't available in in the United States. The concept of 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 um, shifting that rear hook further back wasn't possible without tube tubes, right? Exactly. Yep. And and they and these guys in in the United States came up. Well, they started tying on on a shanks in, in a way of putting that rear hook in the same place as it was for a tube fly. Is that that the gist of it? So what they do, and this is exactly how I do it, uh, and I, the only. Probably the only thing that I've changed is some of the materials that I now use to do it. So basically what they did is they um, 
the shank that I use is not a straight eye hook shank. So the mm. um, the eye is upturned at approximately 45 degrees, right? That's the Waddington, right? Then that, that's what defines a Waddington shank, right? Fundamentally, exactly. That's what it would be, the upturned eye at the front. Yeah. Yep. So um, I then have, um, because again, my flies ride, uh, my intruders indeed ride lead eyes down. So mm-hmm. that means that the eye is facing up, right? At the back of my shank, what I tie in first, once I've done the lead eyes and all that stuff, is I then tie in a loop of monofilament. So it's approximately 30 or 40 pound monofilament. I then tie that in flat with the shank and I bend it up at 90 degrees. So I've basically then created a rear hook eye. Okay, you following? So, okay, so, you, so hang on, let me let me break this down, just, just really summarize. So you're telling us at the start, like you, you, before you put anything on, you'll you'll put your you'll you'll construct your uh, your hook with the fire line on the shank and your lead eyes, and then you then you're ready to build on uh, the materials over your shank. That's if but I did that, like with the trailer hook stuck in that way. So that's sort of like almost a permanent way of putting the hook on there. Yeah. So that's of course. Yep. That way. So, yeah, but essentially we've got a shank with eyes and a hook on it, and yep. and we're ready to build over. And now this mono has been introduced. So this is where I'm. No, what, no, no, no. Hang on. Okay. So. Let me just, I'll just backtrack a bit. So that's, as I said, that's if, if I want to tie the way that um, most people are familiar with, like if I, like if I have, uh, you know, if I'm tying some flies for someone else and they want a shank fly with that type of setup, if they're not familiar with the way that I prefer to do it, which I do have this discussion with them, I will tie it where I will just put a stinger hook tied on stinger wire at the back. As you said, Senyo's intruder wire. I'll use mm-hmm. that with a, with a, um, a hook out the back basically. And that's permanently fixed to the fly, right? So you, once that, Unless I make it a certain length, you won't be able to change out the hook if something was to go wrong if it bent or snapped or something like that. Yeah. Um, on a rock or something, you can never take that fly. Once the fly's gone, it's you know, once that hook's gone, sorry, the fly's pretty much kaput. Yeah. What I do though, my preferred way of tying the intruder, as I said, is the old school way. So there was a, a lack of materials available for the Americans, I guess back then at least, this was way back in the eighties, to buy tube fly materials. It just wasn't something they thought of. Mm-hmm. But the concept, they some of them had done trips over to the um, to Europe. And the concept of it stuck to them and they went, what we want is we want basically to use the weight of a shank, but we want to be able to have the adaptability, like the, the function of a tube fly in that if a fly comes or a hook, sorry, a fish comes along and grabs the fly, the fly can actually come loose, which is what a tube fly facilitates and slide up the line basically. And you've only got the hook then stuck in the fly. Yep. Oh, that's sorry, be- that's because the- all the materials are built on the tube for those who, yeah, don't, exactly. don't, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna. I will get into the shoe flights. Don't worry about that. Yep, so, yep. And this is leading into it. So that's what they did. And so what they do. But you, as I said, you then, if you're if you can only use shanks, you need to create some sort of a, a means of hanging the fly from, uh, like from a, a loop, basically. So you pass the line. I when I tie the way I, I'm trying to describe this. I'm sorry if I'm confusing anyone here. Hey, stop, uh, Nick. Is this so? Are you getting at that like? When when they when these guys build on shanks, they they were, not only are they trying to achieve the hook placement that a tube fly achieves, but also to have a separate fly built on that you could just this slides up the line like a tube. Exactly. So this is what this is what the mono loop's doing, right? Exactly. Okay, so so the mono loop is it just like um like two hoops that just carry carry a main line? Is it is that what's going on there? Or? So my, my leader would then, so let's say, just let's just jump to the head for a second. We'll go to the, the fly's now finished, right? Yep. Get my leader. I pass it down through the eye of the fly. So there's the upturned eye of the fly. So up, okay. I, but look, sorry, man. I'm I'm not following. So, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to pull you up and just reiterate some things because I'm assuming 
assuming there's other people that may be like me and not getting. So the fly's finished. You, and and you're ready to put the 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 line through the eye. So you put it through the eye of the Waddington shank. Yep. Yep. Gotcha. And through. So you then literally just sort of uh, I just pass it down, pass through all the material basically, and then at the right at the back that rear station that we were talking about right back at the beginning of this. Yep. Um, the rear station. My mono loop is just behind that, like right at the rear of the fly. Yep. Okay. Gotcha. So then, I then pass it through that mono loop. So now the fly, if I held the end of the leader and I'm you know two foot up the leader my fly would hang perfectly horizontal on that yep. now, basically through the eye of the hook and that rear mono loop. I then pass, uh, and just, I, I, I use what's called um, just silicon tubing. So basically two mil diameter silicon tubing. Mm-hmm. I pass my line through that. I tie my hook on, just a normal whatever knot you choose. Yep. I then, there's a there's always a portion of the shank at the back which you won't be, which will be bare, obviously, which has been stuck in the vise or the, the, the tube holder or the whatever, the shank holder, right? Mm. I then slide the silicon tube over that and pull the mono up and pull the hook into the back of the thing. So it's now sitting there. The hook is stuck in the back of the fly with the silicon tube. And as I said, once that starts um, swimming, fishing, and the fish comes along and grabs it, what will happen as soon as the fish does a head shake and starts pulling it, the fly will actually come loose. So you won't damage your fly. It won't ruin the fly in any way. And the fish will simply have a hook stuck in its mouth. Okay, so I understand. So... Yep, I, I get what you're saying there. So I'm gonna just I'm just gonna reword it for um us dumb saltwater dudes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, many people would know that like with a, with a tube that uh, you've got two aspects of a tube. Well, essentially a, a basic tube, I guess you could say, and one is the uh, is the keeper tube. I think they call it as well, right? Which is that two mil silicon tube you're saying there. Yeah, keeper tube, junction tube is another junction word they tube. Use for it. Yep. Um, and that's soft enough to be able to like uh, slide over the top or, or, or mold its way over the top of a hook eye. So, so what what Nick's done is he's 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 taken his tippet, passed it through the eye of, instead of tying it onto the eye of the Waddington shake, passed it through, passed it through the materials, passed it through the uh, mono loop that he's constructed and tied in at the back of the shank, um, threaded it through the um, junction tube, tied the hook on, put the junction tube over the end of the the bare end of the shank. And then tuck the uh, hook up into the junction tube. So that's essentially it, right? That sounds easy, right? <laughs> sounds easy. Yep. <laughs> Told you these flies look super strange to me. You know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, look, it's. I mean, I mean, believe me. There's. Uh, I mean, and that's that's just my intruders as well. I mean, um, the the I, tube fly. And we won't. I mean. Yeah, well, not we yet. We, we will no. get into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we will get into it. That's for sure. But. Uh, um, Mate, you have mentioned a couple of people's. Uh, I mean, it's it's pretty interesting. I just want to like, uh, it's it's heavy. It's a heavy subject, and I just want to sure. um, steer away from that a little bit and just talk mm-hmm. about, you know, fly tying in general to a degree. Because, you know, here's here's a guy. You you started fly fishing in Queensland, right? Hundred percent. Okay, and we've talked about your origins of fly fishing with your interview on the Intermediate Line podcast, so we don't need to go into that too much. But, mm-hmm. um. What would have probably been too heavy for the um for the for that show is you know what like what, how does a guy from from a tropical part of the world find, develop an interest in this and and how do you develop an interest in this because uh, before you answer that a lot of people probably would wouldn't know uh, and I know a lot of people do know that that um that if you got into fly fishing while social media is around information for just mainstream fly fishing was hard to get let alone something like this and you've been into this longer than social media right 
uh, well, yeah, probably when it was at its infancy, at least. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. So how did? What is it? What? What? Why, Nick? Why? Why would you do this to yourself? <laughs> why would you? Uh, I mean, it's one of those things. Like, I uh, the the whole thing that kicked it off for me. I mean, uh, I actually ended this years ago. I injured my back and uh, had to do a whole bunch of stuff in the hospital. X Y Z. And after that, I, I mean, to do, I'd been single hand fishing with, um, uh, like doing saltwater, freshwater for, uh, I started when I was about 19. It would have been early 30s when I hurt my back. So 10, 12, 14 years, perhaps, something like that, um, that I've been doing just your, you know, bread and butter. When I say bread and butter fly fishing, I use that term loosely, obviously, but just, you know, your mainstay, your freshwater, saltwater stuff, uh, everything up to tuna, everything mm. down to even things like garfish in the lakes and stuff like that, trout, yeah. all that sort of thing, dry fly fishing, blah, blah. Um, and I've done all of that, but then as soon as I hurt my back, I literally found I'm even picking up things like a five weight and throwing a, a reasonably long line. I've always loved the idea of fly casting, like as mastering sort of how to cast well. Even doing that was agony, and I just went right. And a friend of mine just he had sort of got into it for different purposes as far as it goes. Like he was trying to do it off the beach with uh, big, big, heavy sort of double-handed rods, and um, and I went, well, I don't want to do that because I, I got no interest in standing on the beach doing this. Um, but I kind of went, ah, and I just started looking into sort of what the crux of it was, um, of, you know, why they were doing it. And I went, well, there has to be application for this. And I started looking at it, and I went, okay, it made sense. And, you know, when you, I mean, if you've ever sort of got into something and when you don't know and you sort of have to hand a mouth it, which is all I could do, I just had to, you know, find my way through it, basically. I mean, okay. um, yeah, we had no, I, mean, I don't know, you know what? So, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying to correlate to something that, like what? What's a species to you, and, and what's a, 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 a style of fishing that you did? As, as far as when I say that, I'm talking like be it freshwater in the dams, saltwater for tuna. What's one thing that that, that just popped you and just went? You went, yeah, that's cool. I love doing that. Uh, you know I, in regards to fly fishing or fishing? Uh, either or. I mean, fly fishing definitely, but I mean, either or. Like, what, what's something that just you know, turned your crank and you just went, that makes a whole bunch of sense to me, and I'm I'm, I'm having a fat time doing this. Oh, it'd be the, it'd be the moment I um I went from bait to lures, you know. It's uh and um yeah, I mean real briefly, I mean it's a fly fishing show, but mm-hmm. you know, I, all I did as a kid, I must have been about eleven or twelve. I was yep. I used to um collect yabbies for bait to fish them yep. live. One yep. one was big, and I tried to keep it to come bring it home and eat it, and it died. So I just started chucking out in the water and sat there for ages of the sink and doing nothing. So I started just mucking around trying to make it swim. Mm. And I had a bass from under my feet, like I was standing on top of a ledge, just come out and mm. just absolutely smash it. It was like just like chucking a brick in the water. Yep. Uh, I had read about bass hitting lures before in fishing magazines, but mm. never really clicked with me until I did that and realized what lure – and I don't think I picked up bait ever again. Well, I, that's not true, but not – only because I was fishing with someone who was fishing bait or something like that, or you know, but yeah. um, it was it so, was the click it was the clicker for me, you know that 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 for sure. And then that I don't think I don't even think anything hit me that hard with fly fishing, you know. It's uh, well, that, yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and I, I would agree with you, dude. I could I could probably correlate to the, the first the first time I went lure fishing. I had no freaking idea what I was doing, but the first time I got a fish on a lure, I was astonished. Mm. I was absolutely amazed by, it. and then. From that, I mean, this is going back, that would have been when I was about 14 or 13 or something like that. Um, just in, I'm down in Brisbane, just in the, the lake nearby here. Um, but when I, uh, the, the, as I said, when I injured my back, I thought, well, I, I, I mean, I don't fly fish nearly as much as I would, um, as, as, as much as I used to. But when I do, and as I said, when I found this, I went, well, I want to maintain doing fly fishing, but I'm not sure I can maintain doing 
the standard way of doing it, the single hand overhead kind of cast. And I started looking at this way of doing it. And I went, is it applicable to what I'd like to chase, which I do a lot of bass fishing in the rivers and stuff down here. I went, is it applicable to that? And I went, well, maybe I can make it work. Yes, it's applicable to it. Does it, is it as functional as uh, uh, other forms? I don't know. I'm not sure it's a great searching tool for that. Um, it does put you in parts of the river where other people can't go. Mm. So I went, well, that made sense to me. And that's what pushed me to sort of start looking at it. And then I'd done, um, I'd already done one trip to New Zealand as a, in a summertime run, dry fly fishing and all the rest of it. And I was arranging my second trip. And I, I sat there staring at the, you know, my gear. This is what I've been doing leading up to this, where I often just sit there and ponder while I look at all my rods and bags and crap that I'm going, well, what am I going to use? And I had my switch rod. So, I mean, without getting into the whole plethora of the names and all that sort of thing, basically it's a small double-hander rod sitting there. And I've gone, well, why wouldn't I take that? And then I started looking. I'm going, well, of course, Traddy swung flies. Yeah, of course they would. And then when they're just different types of steelheaded, just seagoing ones, so why mm. wouldn't rainbow trout eat them? Why wouldn't brown trout eat them? I went, eh, let's give it a go. So I went over there, and I, I mean, it was one of those things where I thought, I'll take it along, but I won't use it that much. And it was, as it can be in New Zealand, very windy on the South Island. And I was struggling with the five weight um, that I had, um, in, especially in the area I was, uh, which is pretty much in the middle of South Island. And I got this thing out, and I went, well, if I'm going to suck today, I might as well suck with this thing as well. And started basically flailing away. I hadn't learned to cast properly yet. I was still working all of that out, like all the fine parts of it anyway. Mm. And I got my first my first ever rainbow trout, and this gave me the biggest buzz. Was about seven inches long. Oh, that, on, yeah, on the, the mission, the mission accomplished, though, right? That's it. I mean, after after all the like working out, I mean, because I was having to adjust my tips and you know, like the, the sync rate of the tips, I should say, the type of fly it wanted to actually ate quite traditional fly, uh, steelhead flies, a green butt skunk, it's called. Um, people can Google that to see what that looks like if they're not familiar. Um, and I, I was, as I said, it was about seven inches long, and I just went, "Holy shit!" And the penny dropped then, and then every time I thought about it after that, more and more pennies kept dropping. I was just like, "This makes sense a lot." And then I went, "Right, I'm going to jump in feet first. And that's literally all I did. I just went, I'm jumping in feet first. And the, the fly tying came as a sort of me adapting to the, the scenarios I was fishing more and more and more, basically, mm -hmm. as far as the trout goes. I was doing more and more trips over. This is obviously pre all of the COVID stuff or whatever. Um, I was doing a lot more trips overseas. I was trying to go you know, once, twice a year um, and normally through the colder months because um, that seemed to be the best time to be over there doing it. As I said, I, I, I met my wife at the time, or you know, my partner at the time, and uh, we went down south and we did a trip around here. I've never been down anywhere in Australia for that style of fishing. Um, yep. I don't think anyone at that time had actually done it um, down in that river, and it did well. And I was like, and I was still learning back then, so I'm still learning now, but I've constantly just refined and refined and refined. So my fly tying has sort of had to adapt as I've gotten more and more into it basically because I, I wouldn't accept what i was used to use like if I, I i picked up a fly box i dug out probably maybe 10 10 12 years old that i literally went i could probably throw away 90 you know nine percent of that mm -hmm. and i wouldn't i wouldn't fish it yeah okay well i guess when your interest when your interests change as a as a fly tire i'm guessing your influences too would be too and if there's anyone who's listening to this who um can uh you know is is bringing an interest to this type of fly tying fly fishing to listening to this podcast or is interested to look further to what's going on there who who are your influences like i mean i asked andy last week in regards to influential tires do you, are there anyone you can you can point point people towards or you know or, no, definitely um, yeah. yeah so i mean look the, the the two guys that 
I mean, and I, I still look to these. Um, uh, I've, I bought the original. So there was a video that they started way back when. What I the style of spade casting I do is called skagit casting. And so there was a, a series of videos that um, a producer over in the states called oh, I can't remember his name um, made called Skagit Master. Um, Skagit Master one two three four. So the first one he ever did was with Ed Ward. Um, and the thing that uh, and, and he, as I said, uh, he was the one of the pioneers behind the intruder fly itself. And there was a section on there that showed how he ties his intruder. The color, irrespective of what color it was, I think his was um, like chartreuse and purple or something like that. It's an amazing looking fly. And in his words, he said, these flies aren't tightly like they're engineered. So they're designed for a purpose. Everything on there is about doing something. Like it's not just, oh, it looks pretty or it does this. It's mm. all there for a reason. And uh, I mean, he uses, this is again, all sorts of, these are sort of older school techniques, but that there and everything I've seen from Edward as far as it goes, you just, I don't know, they completely appeal to me. Along with him, um, Jerry French. Uh, Jerry French is the, has to be um, the pioneer of what you would class as the composite loop development, which we can get into if you'd like to. But um, the composite loop development was uh, like a dubbing loop, but a hundred times more so than just a dubbing loop. Okay. If that makes sense. No, that does, and it is something I want to get into. It's um because yeah, yeah, but uh, but no, that's that's very interesting into as to your uh, influential tires. I mean, it's um if uh you know like if you live in australia it's very hard to find someone to be influenced by for that that style of um or that style of fly tying that's for sure mm. I'll but, tell you, uh, actually, sorry just to add on yeah. the, the one person i will say and and now lives in this country that i will say i think is possibly one of them uh, the i think as far as just an eye for the detail um who uh previously lived overseas and now lives here is um april Vogie. she oh, okay. ties an amazing intruder. Well, okay. I, I was, and like this is before, I think she was before she might, uh, and I'm sorry if you're listening, April, I'm not sure if you do, but um, I think she married a bloke down in Sydney. And I think before she moved here, I used to see a lot of the videos where she would tie. Um, she, I think she did a couple of tying things overseas and stuff like that, but she has one called, um, here we go, it's going to test my knowledge. I think it's the Popsicle, I think it's called, but it's basically like a, 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 a blue and um, cerise, I think is more the color as opposed to pink. Mm-hmm. And this fly, uh, she uses a lot of rear and all, and very good, very good fly ties. So I mean, I, I draw like a, a, I mean, I could probably say I couldn't name names. I, I look at a lot of like social media for things like that, just for color combinations. Mm-hmm. I even look at weird things for my influences, dude. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure about yourself, but I look at things like uh, the Japanese uh, companies that make really good spinner baits. I look at their color combinations and go, that would look awesome on a fly. You know, I, I, I can't, I mean, I can understand what you're saying there. I, I will start off by saying that I, I don't see, unless we understand, unless we understand that our, our, what the, let me, the biology of our prey, the biology of the fish that we're chasing, and we understand what their eyes do and what they see, you know, we can't really tie flies to suit um, that, that's, you know, to, the, to suit to hunt that species. No. So I can't see. I mean, I can't see the benefit of doing that with with normal fly time because there are other triggers um, that um, that you know that potentially. Well, one, some of these triggers might not even be valid, um, and there are other triggers to to um, to to look at. But in saying that, I didn't see the correlation between spinnerbaits and and intruders, say as or spay flies, until you said that. And I know that's not with all of them. 
But I could see how that would be a more natural comparison to say uh, a deceiver that's 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 tied to the same colours as someone's favourite hard body, you know? No, that's exactly, just... yeah, and, and that's true because it creates that umbrella type flow exactly. So all those, I mean, that's the same thing. That's the same concept with that. The way that those silicon skirts work on those, or the, the rubber leg skirts, is they're not designed to just be this bulk of colour. It gives you an illusion of sort of mass without having the mass there. So it's, yeah. Yeah. Well, we see it in we see it in nature with like marlin, like they they light up their stripes light up because it gives the illusion of them not being that big, as big. You know, it, it breaks yeah. up breaks up the contrast to bait fish, and they can hunt that way. Um, so at, at the same. I'm sorry, I was just going to say the same token, like that combination of colours, uh, you know, that are um, intended to be obnoxious, that are mm. blending together as the path of water flows over, and that being that silica skirt or an intruder. You know, yeah. like I can see how. This is um this is beneficial to to be chasing the prey that you that you are intending to catch. Yeah, so I mean it's uh, I mean and this is a question I've had uh, I've raised many times with a lot of different fly tires um, uh, of all different levels of skill and all that sort of stuff is do you tie a fly and this is a, obviously a question for yourself as well do you tie a fly to blend into the environment or stand out from the environment that you're fishing wherever that might be and whatever color water etc might be but do you try and make it really pop or do you try and make it uh, like you know if it was really clear water like say a, a beautiful sand flat do you want a chartreuse and white clouds or that's going to really go bing in the water especially if it's only relatively shallow like if you're talking a meter and a half of water maybe that chartreuse and water is going to re- uh, the chartreuse and white sorry is going to really stand out um or do you try and make it blend in but just have certain things in it that make it go pop there's a lot of factors that will determine my decision making with that and i guess the the big the big, um, you know, well, the start of that flow chart for decision making with me is understanding my prey, understanding mm-hmm. my prey, and understanding what how they hunt and what they what they react to. Okay, mm-hmm. I guess from there, you know, it would it would depend on where they are, you know, mm-hmm. and and that could mean that by that it could mean are they in um, running water or still water. Uh, from mm-hmm. there, it could be dirty to clean water. From there, it could be to pressure to no pressure. Um, and then from there it could be time of day or night, yep. you know. Yep. So there's a lot of things that would take me to that to that decision making. So I mean, I couldn't really hard and fast answer it in that respect, you know, because of um because of all those decisions that would need to be made prior to that. Mm, mm. Uh, but I think for the majority of the fishing that I do, living in a in a pretty pressured place, um, I mean, I, I'm trying to answer, it, but I can't really either because you know, like I'll I'll spend a lot of time in in blue water, and then I'll I'll spend time in in still water in fresh water. You know, like it's mm-hmm. a, or I'll, I'll I I mean, last week I, I last week I only fished fished a river. Then I was then I was up to the you know the the, the northern part of Fraser Island, and then mm-hmm. this week I'll be I'll be in an impoundment. So I mean, it's 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 is there's no hard and fast answer to your to your question there. I suppose that does give food for thought. But um, you know, for you, for your new preparation for your this Yuka Bean trip that you still talking about, which is the reason we got you on as well, circling back to that. Mm. Um, how about yourself? What what are, what are you tying for? I mean, you did mention the Yabbies, you did mention yeah. the hotspot, and you did mention bringing up something that's a bit louder than than like uh, standard prey items. Is that so, standard for you? Yeah. So I mean, if we if we go like, I mean, the Yuka Bean River is. Um, uh, as a prime example, is tannin stain. So it sort of looks like um, tea if mm-hmm. you cupped it, right? Um, 
So, I mean, imagine, I mean, it's not a deep river, though. So, I mean, I'm sure there are parts of it that are, but for the most part, it's not a very deep river. Like, I'm going to maybe suggest it's maybe about five foot at the deepest run, at least when I've been there. I'm sure it does get deeper, but for the most part, when I was there, it was about five foot in the deepest slot. Is it um, wide okay. as well? No, like maybe, maybe at the, uh, like as you get down towards the lake side of things, like the top section of it, because, sorry, just so to clarify, I'm fishing a river that's flowing into the Lake Eugenbe, not the tail out, basically. So I'm fishing the headwaters of it gotcha. um, as, it, as it's flowing in. So, um, like, there's a spot they call up past the tree line where it turns more into a gorge. So that's very narrow. It might only be 40 foot across, something like that. Um, but as you get further down onto the sort of the plains, which leads down into where the dam is more so, um, maybe sort of up to about 80 feet wide, something like that. It's not massive, but good fishable size, for, especially for what we're, you know, the way I'm fishing and all that sort of stuff. You don't have to work too hard, which is good. Mm -hmm. um, so you can you can really sort of cover the pools thoroughly, which is good. Um, but the water down there is, um, as I said, it's got that, that tea colour to it. So I tie my flies, as an example, the bulk of the flies, I've got, as I did mention before, they're crayfish that live in the lake. Um, uh, uh, an olive with a, a very prominent, um, and, you know, in every variation of olive. When I say that, I'm not saying strictly one type of olive because there's you know, millions of different types of greens, I guess you could say. Um, but uh, but they have very, at least the ones I've seen, have been a very obvious orange markings on them uh, and, and quite fluorescent almost, uh, at least what would appear to my eyes as fluorescent, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I try to add these those little pop colours in there. Now that, as I said, because you've already got a brown influence in the water from the tannin stain, um, gold sort of changes into a sort of an orange reflection if you know what i mean so you don't have to strictly use orange um so i use gold copper and that sort of variation of, of orange if you want um okay. like dirty uh, oranges exactly yeah exactly um and then, so, stuff like that yeah exactly so i mean copper copper you know and copper uv i, I know you, you know you guys talked about this last time and i know andy put up that awesome picture of that shrimp as well um, I swear by UV colours, or UV flash, I should say specifically, or UV mixes through. So even if I've got, say, uh, say if I'm using Senyo's laser dub or, or um, ice dub, I, even if it's a non-UV colour, I will mix UV into it. Is that I'm, important to you, yeah? UV? It, it does. I mean, and it's one of those things, it's like, you know, it's worked for me, and so I swear by it, basically. Yeah. Like, I, I think it, it's just, it's, it's just proven itself time and time again, and I sort of looked at my, my confidence flies as far as you know what I've, we've been explaining and talking about, et cetera. I want my flies to keep catching when everyone else stops catching, mm. basically. That's and so far my flies seem to do that quite well. So you okay? So that's that's an interesting point. So you've seen you've seen this. You fish next, like you mentioned vampires earlier. Like I've I say to people with vampires, you can have any color combination as long as it's this. You know, a joking around. I've yep. seen I've seen people try to vary fast vampires with different material types and different colors and stuff like that. And I know that John Schofield brought out the Wolverine, which was an alternative to, uh, to the, to the bass vampire, which also had a, a certain degree of success and also the colors will, but on tough days and when they stop eating that, that combination of, um, and that amount of glow in the eyes and, and all that sort of stuff, like those little eccentricities, like of, um, of, uh, of, of material selection and, and, and detail. That's what keeps 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 fish from keeps fish eating time and time again, and I guess we only really know that through observation of that actually happening, and that's what I was getting at. So you've you've um, you've seen that happen a few times, yeah? Yeah, I mean, so look, fishing. Uh, I mean, I wish I had sort of, uh, I guess you could say, all the money in the world to sort of go and fish these untouched, pristine waters. Uh, I simply don't. So I'm a lot of the time I'm fishing, especially in New Zealand. 
uh, I'm fishing there on, for one of a term, better term, sorry, budget. Um, so I'm, it's if I can drive there, I can fish it. I'm not going to helicopter and I'd love to, but I just simply don't have the money at the moment to do that. So mm. I'm fishing, I mean, and I'll happily fish as an example. Uh, and anyone who's listening in New Zealand, if they fish the Tongariro river, which is in the middle of the North Island, um, would be familiar with the hydro pool, which is the town pool. Like there's, there's a few more than that, but the hydro pool is one of the main, uh, one of the main pools that, uh, indeed I like to fish and it gets a lot of pressure. Everyone, I mean, there's. I mean, it's literally the houses back onto that part of the river. Everyone, there's a footpath. There's people walking past the whole time. There's always someone fishing. It. There's, there's never not anyone. And there's sort of the head, the middle, and the, the tail of the pool. And there's always someone on it. I've, I've rarely pulled up there and, and found the river to myself, basically. Mm -hmm. Or yep. that pool, I should say. And then there's a couple further down. So, yeah, so it's pressured, highly pressured water. Yeah. And so fishing that, I mean, even after someone's just gone through there, um, and, and I, I, I still to this day, and this is not to blow smoke up my own ass here, but <laughs> one one thing Let's that did, it. no, I okay, go well, yeah. <laughs> um, so I mean, on the particular occasion, so um, I was waiting on a bank. There was already a guy on the pool fishing the tails, like you basically walking around the middle and fish your way down. And uh, he'd gone through, and he was swinging flies on. I think he was fishing just woolly buggers for one of a better term. Um, that style fly, anyway, it's just a, a standard sort of woolly buggery looking thing, marabou, etc. And he went through, um, and he probably what normally you go in. And you just basically loop around until you've sort of gone, okay, I've covered that pool well and truly now. I haven't got any touches or I did, whatever, I'll call it quits. So he came out and I thought, well, I'm not going to step on him until he actually comes out because you, you want to be polite and you just want to you know, walk in. And that's something that people need to learn about on rivers anyway. But yeah, you shouldn't just walk in on someone when they're fishing a pool and go, hey, I'm just going to start fishing behind you. Do you mind? You can go up and ask. And if they say no, don't do it. You know, don't be a dick. Kind of leave them alone and let them fish the pool until they're, they're done and then go and have a fish after them. Which is what, and as I said, this is more of a, um, I kind of went, well, I'm, I'm still confident to fish through it. So he was one of these blokes who came out and he was, you know, good to have a chat with, obviously, after he was very friendly over there. And um, he was looking through my fly box and he was just like, you, you just fish nothing but intruders, basically. And it, at that stage, that's literally all I had. I didn't have any um, uh, any other types of sculpt and flies or anything like that. I just had nothing but like a big plan. If you, uh, There's a box called a Plan D 50-50. Uh, and I literally had a but it's a double-sided box. One holds nothing but tubes, so they were all tube intruders. The other side was all shanks. And so I just had nothing but intruders, basically. And the smallest fly would have been about, uh, total length, about four inches, mm -hmm. up to about six. Um, and uh, him, he was meeting up with a couple of his mates. And there's that sort of, um, which I, I think is very funny, that sort of whole jovial thing between Kiwis and Australians. Um, and it was the whole, oh, go on then, go show us how it's done, and blah, blah, blah. Bloody Aussie's coming over here with this, that, and the other flies, or whatever. Hey, you're just going to fish this year, go for it. And sort of a bit tongue in cheek and a bit of taking the piss and all the rest of it. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, cool. Yeah, pool's empty now. So you know, I go. And two swings in, got smashed, hooked up. Thanks very much. He'd just been through that pool uh, eight times. He'd probably done that run and got yeah, that. So, yeah, I mean, was, what was he fishing? What was he? What was the difference? Was it? Was he swinging flies too? He was using, oh, okay. yeah. So he was still a sink tip the whole lot. So wintertime fishery, uh, he was there. That was in August. We were there. I, I can't remember the bloke's name. He was lovely, and I'm definitely not taking the piss out of him. Um, he was he was a lovely guy. It was just one of those those. If you wanted to be a smug prick, that was the time. If you know, yeah, what I mean. right. But he chose he chose the high road anyway. But he was yeah. yeah. Okay. But there was that sense of competition there. But what you're saying there is that uh, there was something there was something different. Like it was it was a. It was a reaction that you were getting out of your flies. That, was he fishing intruders as well? 
Uh, no, he was fishing woolly buggery type things, which uh, right. when I, I'm just loosely using the term because I can't remember. It was basically, I remember it, it was quite a big fluffy marabou type fly. Okay, which, so we, oh, so just, just sorry, Nick. So just to, just to break that down, so we've got, you know, woolly buggers aren't, aren't as big as intruders. They're not even half as big, right? Generally speaking, no. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we've got a, uh, we've got a, like, I mean, all those salmonoids, like, uh, you know, uh, are generally high end predators. It's amazing that, um, that more people don't see them that way as opposed to, as opposed to foragers, you know, um, I know that, the, I mean, I, I know part of their, uh, predatory, uh, label includes, you know, the terrestrial items, um, you know, picking off, picking off, uh, my, you know, potentially foraging like that for, for dead insects and stuff like that as well. But, um, but I mean, they seem quite aggressive enough to be able to, uh, attack something that's of, um, you know, quite a mouthful as well. I mean, I see, I see people in the United States. The streamers are quite popular over there, and in other parts of the world as well. But in the United States, I probably probably see the most information in regards to. Uh, you know, some of the fires are massive. I I used to have customers with tying game changers who request eight inch, yeah, uh, you know, rainbow rainbow trout game changers to feed the brown trout. You know, I was. Just, Wow, this is amazing. Some of them are even bigger. They reckon they they reckon they couldn't even get it big enough, you know. Yeah, um, I mean that, that's a, the the brown trout. I mean, as a prime example, the brown trout streaming fishery over in the states is is just a perfect example because you think, like you just said, an eight inch streamer, like articulated or otherwise, you're like, you're casting what? This you know, yeah, and on. this is with a one a single hook up the front as well. Yeah. yeah so, which is they're really creaming it, like they're absolutely smashing that fly, like they're going to kill it. Yeah. 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 I've noticed that, uh, like, like Saratoga, you know, like uh, those 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 salmonids will, will generally eat from the rear as opposed to head first, right? Yeah, generally speaking, yeah. Yep. So I mean, for them to take up a whole eight-inch game changer from the tail over the head and yeah. uh, and go over the hook, you know, yeah. is um is amazing. It's incredibly <laughs> that's, aggressive. Yeah, that's purpose. That's like, I, I mean, and that's, I mean, the brown trout. I, I think the brown trout are somewhat more. Um, the way they behave is somewhat more aggressive than the rainbows. Um, and like a, a palpable sort of you know value you could put against it. Like it's, I don't know why specifically. Maybe they're far more territorial or something like that, and that sort of triggers that reaction. But those flies again. I mean, if you put, you could probably catch as a food source. Like if you're if you're either stripping or swinging or what have you, a woolly bugger through there, you'll catch your a uh, share of your fish if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, is it going to get the biggest reaction out of the fish? I don't know. I don't. I wouldn't say so. Is it going to necessarily draw the biggest fish out? Um, and this is, uh, I mean, this is again, I'm, I'm sort of not targeting your two pounders or your you know, three pounders even. I sort of want, I'll catch everything in between. I don't care. But I'm sort of wanting to appeal to the biggest, you know, bully in the bunch, basically. I want the, the biggest thing to come out and crunch my fly. Yeah. So, yep. That's, so, I mean, and, big, and bigger flies tend to get that reaction. I mean, I, I mean, I'm still amazed. Like, I mean, the last time I, I fished at you can be, I said back in 2015 there, I was still getting, you know, one pounders basically smacking my flies and I'm going, okay. And I mean, they don't put much of a bend in the rod as far as it goes, but it's still an aggressive reaction to that fly. Like that fish is going, I've got to kill this thing. And you're like, well, what were you thinking? But yeah. clearly it wanted to eat it and it would, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, it's most of the guys, I think the guys in the, uh, at least down there, because uh, on that section of the river, I, know, I wish this wasn't this way, if I'm honest. But they, um, you're allowed to lure fish and fly fish down there. I like the idea of some rivers being fly fishing only. That's a bit snobby, but that, even though I, I lure fish, but I would never lure fish for trout. Don't ask me why. Um, but 
down there, um, I did have a bloke step in on me uh, on a pool where I was. I said, my big, to summarize, my biggest fish, uh, heaviest fish has come from the Yukon River um, and it bottomed out um, 12 pound scales. Okay. That's, so it, that's a pretty big fish. Yeah. I mean, a very heavy, very thick, like very broad shoulders on it. It's just that they're well fed from down in that lake. Um, so it bottomed out there and I went, okay, it's at least 12 and it's left it at that, let the thing go. But that fish came as a result of a lure fisherman as I'm stepping through the pool, a lure fisherman coming in, what they do is they hit and run pools. They come in, they just fan cast as quickly as they can across the river with, these are things like Rapala husky jerks and all that sort of stuff, if you know them, which are rainbow. Small, small hard bodies, essentially, yeah? Yeah, well, these rainbow are... Rainbow coloured. Yeah, yeah, exactly, rainbow trout coloured, yeah. And these are up to about 90 centimetres, uh, sorry, 90, 90 millimetres long. Yep. So they're quite long uh, as far as they go. So they use it and they go, duh, 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 and they just burn through these pools and they rip. And so he actually tangled the line twice in the process of what he was doing. And I'm just kind of looking at him and he just ignored me and I just went, all right. So I stood my ground. I thought, I'm not leaving and literally set up another car, set it out. And just as he was sort of pulling off a bit of grass or something from his, his lure, um, I got tapped and then I got smashed and went, there we go, and hooked up. And he all he saw, like the first thing he saw was that fish coming tail walking out of the water. And you see him go, <laughs> fuck, and then walks off. I'm like, yeah, suck. <laughs> <laughs> Very satisfying. That sounds yeah, awesome. It was. So, I mean, but yeah, that's, I mean, uh, I mean, so the crux of uh, those flies that I'm tying is, is because I'm not tying them small. I mean, I will, if the fish are being extremely finicky, as they can be, you know, any type of fish can be finicky. I've seen schools of tuna eating sets of eyes swimming through the water. That's all you can see. And, and every, you know, manner of surf candy, this is at least in my experience. I don't have much as far as tuna goes, but I did it for a good couple of years. Um, and, you know, they're eating these tiny little bait fish. And they, I could not tie a small, you know, like a fly small enough for them. I'm just like, how do you do this? Like, <laughs> yeah. like, with a hook that was strong enough to land a long tail on, you know, so it didn't make sense. Yeah. Uh, but, and then the trout can be, you know, with that in mind, they can be just like that. They can be, you know, they'll focus on small stuff or for whatever reason, if they, maybe they are, they've had too much pressure that day. They don't want to eat anything big. Yeah. But I will persevere sometimes with the bigger flies and I'll definitely fish into those sort of the wee hours of the light as it's starting to fade off. I go, right, this is where, yeah, I mean, this is when my fish is going to come out because they're going to go, right, pressure's off, everyone's gone, I'm now the big buck in the pool again, I'm going to swim around and eat whatever I want and it'll come along and crunch or fly when that light's low. Um, but, but, yeah. Yeah. What do we, what do we know about um, browns and rainbows' eyes? Do, do you know if they see colour as well? Do you know they see colour and do you know if they see UV as well? No, I don't. I, I mean, this is all, all of the... the <laughs> I guess you could say shitty research that I've done on it um, <laughs> has all been yeah. based off my experience. Um, it's, I still, I mean, the thing, the thing that, I mean, I think you mentioned in the show last time when you guys were talking about UV, the only way we'd be able to do it is to dissect a fish's eye, right? Like, so catch the fish that you want to catch or that you want to target. So get it however you can and then basically dissect its eye and then see what actually refracts off its eyeball and see what yeah. works. And, and, that's, and that's still, when we do that, we go, okay, that's still an assumption that they can see it the way we perceive, you know, we perceive that they can see it. Yeah, that's does right. That, that's that's. Does, sorry, you're right, man. Yep. Well, I was gonna say, does that mean is that does that make sense? Like what I'm trying to say? Like we're still. No, you're right. I, like I'll tell you something that happened today. So I spoke to um, Gian Boyson from um, um, oh God, I can't remember his shop in New Zealand. Just look up Gian. Um, Kings to be found. Anyway. Yep. Anyway, so I spoke to him today, and we were talking about what we spoke about on the show with Andy, and we we spoke a little bit more in regards to. The, uh, the UV aspect of it. And I said to Gian, I said, you know what? I was thinking what would be really good is to, if you know you, had, you could construct some sort of 
viewing box, if you like, you know, where you could, you know, go out to the reef, catch a catch a, a fusilier, put it in this completely dark uh, box that had like a, a viewing piece over it, so you could, you know, re- remove all um, uh, external light from it, put your goggles over, and then illuminate this this live fish out of the water with a with a black light, so you could see what it does. Now that will tell us a what what that fish does under that spectrum of uv light we know that natural light will um will encompass a broad range of um, uv spectrums of of different wavelengths uh from visible uh, all the, you know to to the most extreme non-visible lights that sort of stuff so you know you know 320 wavelength or something like that that's not important but then once we know that and they've got that information you know we're, we're still then assuming that 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 it matters to our prey you know like our, our prey like um, that our prey's prey is is showing up a certain way with a with a black light. Doesn't mean anything. I mean, we could look and go, "Wow, look at those dots and look at those lines light up." And I'm going to tie hot chartreuse and a fluoro blue to to match that fusilier. But is the fish that we're chasing able to see that as well? Is it that big a trigger to them? Exactly, exactly. You know? That's. I mean, yeah, I've I've had these exact conversations too, where we sat there and go like. You know, the, the, you'll see a certain pattern and go, must have this when you're chasing this fish. And you go, well, how do you know that? Like, what are you basing that off? And it's all, I mean, I, I, I use, so there'll be basic things that I use in my flies. Like, as an example, I've got a bunch of flies, as I said before, with that copper flash in it. Mm-hmm. And the main the main reason that I do that is I go, well, I know the copper, because I've seen it in the water, and that's how my eyes perceive it. And on my eyes perceive it as something, okay, I can see that pop when the sun hits it, and a little bit of flash, light hits it, and you get a little bit of bang. It also comes from, as I'm sure you're aware up here, you fish sort of um, air estuaries and all that sort of stuff, uh, barramundi, mangrove jack, et cetera, mm-hmm. gold, gold lures, gold flies, all that sort of thing, you know, and anything that will stand out in that sort of murky water, I think, not fluorescent necessarily, but just something that has gold as a, as a, as a mangrove jack thing, as an example, is a prime one, gold or that sort of goldy red colour. Yeah, um, I, know, it, I, know, I know what you're saying, but is it the colour as we, this is the thing, like we, we is it the colour as we see it, you know, or is it, is it because the more because the way we see it, it appeals to us? We think that mangrove jack like that without actually truly knowing if they see gold. So therefore, it's a it's a it's a fly or a lure that we throw more often than not because commonly amongst humans they believe that the gold is the more effective lure or fly. Therefore, That's no the, other color flash gets thrown. So therefore, had, well, it, it, yeah, it, it is the most popular color for those fish because that's all they see. And that's because that's all we think to throw at them. Because yeah. we kind of go, well, historically, it's been the last, let's say, there was 5,000 people have said that this is the right color to use. Well, who would I be to disagree there? Basically, yeah. so, you know, I'm going to tie something at least with gold flash in it so that I can say, well, I used a gold fly and I caught mangrove jack with it. Therefore, what they said was true. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly. So, I mean, the, the, I guess the point, uh, getting back to it, I mean, like it's like the flow chart that I mentioned earlier. We can't, we can't, we can't formulate this opinion with any sort of substance until we understand what. You know, people can see it's like it's like as if we were chasing humans, arguably, uh, or hypothetically, I should say, we're chasing humans. We are chasing humans anyway, as, as uh, fly tires sometimes. But um, but let's just say let's say we're hunting humans, and it would de- depend on the on the color. You know, like I mean, you could say, uh, like, how how would you know that if there's a like a, a colony of of colorblind people, you know, and and um and this one person was was hunting these humans, and they were throwing out these these red hamburgers, you know, to, to hook them or something like that. Um, but they only saw them as green, you know, whereas um, yeah. then if they went somewhere else in the world and there was no colorblind people that, um, you know, a red hamburger was, that was a complete warning sign to them. They wouldn't get to eat anywhere, 
you know that um that by that way by that way of thinking we're understanding our, what what our prey sees if you know what i'm saying you know and we're adjusting well, adjusting accordingly but, well, no, exactly. Um, I mean, as a, as a, I mean, as a funny thing to that you just mentioned before with the, you know, would it be a warning? So, I mean, if you think about, and this is something I always used to question. I've never been a fan of yellow in flies, yellow and black specifically, for reasons that are probably quite obvious. So, yellow and black to me, in every sense of the word, in nature even, is a warning. So, is that a warning that they go? So, I mean, like if you think about wasps or bees. Um, Actually, mainly that's the two things that are like that, um, that, you know, they're going to present a nasty stinging thing if you come along and give me any hard time. Mm. Um, are yellow and black? I mean, in our world, we use it for biohazard signs, all that sort of stuff. So you kind of go, well, why would you use yellow and black to try and appeal to something? So it's like, okay, so do they see it as yellow and black? Probably not. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, but then you you got, you know, uh, yellowfin whiting. You know, they um, yellow, a yellow over white clouds are, is pretty pretty effective. Um, it is. Well, yellow and black combined, I did say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that, that's true. It, uh, um, <laughs> I have to disagree with you there, man. I, 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 yellow, yellow and black, yellow, just yellow and black and gold is one of my favourite threadfin flies for sure. There you go. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, and that's to say, obviously, it's not a. I mean, it doesn't have that necessarily that same warning thing. This is just, as I said, that's my perception of it. Like I went, well, that's a warning color. Why would I use that? But yeah, yeah. You, you've gone ahead and just provided a. An exact reason why you should because it's one of my best threadfin flies yeah but, I should say. but I, my way of thinking with that is the um is the dirty water with the gold and i can't achieve gold in a natural material so i'm just going with yellow and the mm. black is a, is a contrast you know with that so um yep. yellow tends to really pop in dirty water as well tannin stain water particularly in particular in my opinion so it's yep. more of a, of a visual thing i don't know what threadfin see i think they uh, probably <laughs> um they're, they're um their uh their site is probably you know a um a secondary or even a tertiary um uh you know hunting hunting tool for them you know they probably use their whiskers and vibration and sm- scent yep. before anything else but um yep. yeah but so you know that was my mentality with that i mean you can also think of yellow in i mean not just totally um just you know attack your theory there but like yellow in moon crabs and some of that as well like the crab legs there's no black in that, to be fair, either. But uh, a little bit black between the joints and things like that. Some of those crabs and look, I understand what you're saying, and and it's a fair enough theory. But the the thing is, we could bandy around that the whole time. The thing with fly fishing theories is, is is proving them, and not just proving them once, but proving them many times before they become a theory, so to speak. Yeah. You know, repeat customer. Yep. Yeah, exactly, and I and and I guess that uh, without without dragging up an old subject, I suppose that's where you know I was interested to, uh, in in regards to your observations as far as uh, fishing a fly that keeps fishing where others don't, because that's a that's an observation um, that that promotes a, a repetitive fly tying uh, you know approach you know, um, and that's that's why you know like I mentioned on the previous show, intermediate advice with Andy and stuff about flies and fly ties that that will tie flies without getting them wet even you know or let alone catching fish regularly um mm. you know it's, it's a real trap for for those who are, who are influenced by who they're seeing on social media um you, know, you mentioned you mentioned some of your favorite fly ties earlier i'll bet you those guys were of interest to you because you know they caught the fish that you wanted to catch as well well exactly you know? yeah yeah no that's exactly right i mean it's um I, I know what you're saying before about sort of, I mean, you can tie sort of, there's people out there who will tie pretty flies um, that look beautiful and, and there's there's no denying that there's a skill involved in, in tying what they are. I mean, they're massively skilled ties, but then you kind of go, well, are they 
do they actually hunt? Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, will they actually draw the fish out and do everything that they should do? That's I mean, the big difference, you know. You're yeah. right. And and those guys are generally tying flies that someone else has um has observed works, you know. So uh, I, I I tend to find that like you know flies that appeal to humans uh, generally depends on the human, I suppose. And maybe that's not not right. I've seen I've seen people like um throw flowers down at some terrible looking bloody flies, just flies that I just look at. And go, how how could anyone even how could anyone even think that's even viable? But that's not what not what I don't really want to go on bashing everyone about stuff. But um, but the point is, I suppose, is um, you know that that flowchart of um, that flowchart of decision making, I suppose, and and one one of them can be if you don't have the ability to um spend the time on the species, like like you said earlier, like you know fishing un un uh, unpioneered waters or uncharted waters, so to speak, yeah. yep. is to look at other people's results of those who who can and do, and even better looking at the results of those people that that do well in pressured waters like like you were talking about you know that's um you know if they, if, if fish are a fish are um are biting down on on these flies in pressured waters sure as eggs mate they're going to be they're going to be hammered in unpressured waters you know so i mean that's that's the that's the place of focus that i would recommend to people who are you know starting out and listening and looking which way to spend their efforts and um you know hard earned whether it be you know for time materials or or fuel in the car or whatever, you know, but, um, yeah. you know, that's, that's the way to look there. Um, man, I'm going to do a bit of a, um, a bit of a turn here and, sure. um, and, and bring up, uh, in regards to the flies that you tie, um, some of the exotic materials. And you mentioned Rhea before, um, mm-hmm. as an example, uh, not many people probably know that Rhea is like, um, is, a, is almost like an ostrich looking thing. It's a, it's a South American bird, isn't it? I yep. believe, um, yep. it's, um, it's, I don't know if you should should we met it's well it's it's not it's not easy to come by let's put it that way it's very hard to come by yeah. yeah it's very hard to come by and it's I mean look it's uh it it presents um a much finer profile uh feather than the ostrich does so generally yeah. speaking that is um, very nice yeah it's very very nice I've got I've got a couple of plumes of it here at the moment yeah. actually but yeah, um, I, it's hard I'll hard have, to get I'll have, I'll have to have a look one day because I, <laughs> I ran out some time ago. <laughs> um, yeah, right. I know a bloke, mate. Don't worry. Uh, don't. Yeah, good. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but I mean, it's, are, it's one. Sorry, go on. You go. I was going to say, what are some of the other um, exotic materials that are sort of, and uh, maybe not in this day and age, unique to spay, but probably uh, originated from from spay or may still be unique to spay. Spay flies. Yes. So I mean. Uh, 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 the bulk of the stuff I use, I mean, I do use ostrich, but there's a there's a way that I make, and I'm going to give away one of my trade secrets here, uh, and I'm a nice guy for doing that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but ostrich I use um, as my, uh, if you want, right at the end of the fly, my overwing, basically. So I don't use it traditionally how um, most people tie an intruder and they have the ostrich going all around the fly in various points. They normally tie the feathers in individually or tie it in as a loop. I don't do that. I use different materials which i'll get into in a minute but um i use ostrich as i said as a final overwing for the fly because i just like ostrich um and i use uh, lady amherst you did mention that the other day and you did pronounce it correctly um yep. it's the it's the senator feather um which has uh, i think it's the most markings out of it so you've got i mean I'm, I'm literally looking at my feathers now i've got red orange natural brown purple green blue what is that is that a top of pheasant it is, yeah. So Lady Amherst uh, is, I think it's called the Amherst pheasant. Lady Amherst oh, pheasant. It? I think. Yeah, it's a natural bird. Um, okay. And yeah, the whole thing. And it's um, uh, the the you get the 
more like we get um, the the typical ones you'll see in most fly shops are like the side tail feathers. They're not the main center feathers, center tail feathers, sorry. Um, mm. This is on the rear of the bird. And so they're the ones I prefer. They've got the, the most, so the longest parts of the world. So the one side is a bit shorter than the other, but you might have on one side about, say, two inches long, and the other side might be up to about four inches long, depending on the quality of the feather you get. Yeah. Um, and how do you use those? I just use quickly, those. I want to hear some more materials. So just, just skim on that one. Yeah, yeah. So I literally will put, um, so I'll cut off a section, let's say about eight uh, individual filaments of the Lady Amherst, and I'll literally put those as part of my composite loop. So I'll okay. spread, that, spread that out through my, which that we've got to get into the composite loop bit. We, we get there, mate, for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that I'll use. And it's just to give a bit of, um, like it'll be a color pop. So let's say if I do an olive fly, I'll use, it's a, a bright orange one that I have here, bright orange Lady Amherst center tail feather. And yep. I'll just, um, I'll, I'll, section that I like divide up the basically the stack that I've got that I'm trying to and I'll just put these in there sort of spread out maybe half a centimeter increments and so that okay. when I that round eye fly is going to sort of you know encompass the whole fly basically gotcha uh what about um materials like nutria and things like that as well yeah nutria um I've I ran out of nutria a while ago but I do use a lot of um I, I did use a lot of it fin raccoon is another one that I do like using um yep both the long guard hairs and the undercoat as well. Um, Arctic Fox. Um, if I tell you what, and I've tried using some synthetics for this, and I know we talked about it. It doesn't, I mean, like we said, you know, with uh, you, I've heard you guys talk about you, um, Bucktail. You can't, yeah. you can't come close to the original, right? It's, I mean, as far as using a synthetic goes, um, it's the same with Arctic Fox, Fin Raccoon, all of those. Having a synthetic version of that or something resembling it just doesn't seem to work quite as well. And um, I guess the closest synthetic would be craft fur or um or polar fiber. Um, exactly, yeah, polar fiber yeah. flat. And it, and it just, I mean, it, it doesn't. I mean, Arctic fox has a density to it. I mean, I guess it's got to keep these things warm in a in a very free, you know, frigid climate, obviously. So, mm. um, it, it's a very dense fur. And when you when I use it as basically spun on a dubbing loop as an example, it just goes. It, it's mohawk. It just goes and stands yeah. up. It's, yeah, it's it's a That's, brilliant feather. That's the thing with um with fox is that it's not hollow. Did, I don't know if you know that. So it's not it's not cellular. I mean, people call bucktail hollow, and it's and it's not. It's it's quite bamboo like. It's got little cell cell cellular like little pockets in it, if you like. Um, but obviously, a trapped air, and obviously, um, you know, tra trapped air is um is probably the easiest way something's going to be able to keep warm. Uh, I mean, that's what all fur does. That's what the hair on our, uh, on humans do when we get um it stands up on its end, just trying to trap air to keep us warm. Um. But uh, you know, fox, marble fox, uh, even even uh, um, Arctic fox, and even fin raccoon, both all those those types of hair don't have a density. So when you're talking about uh, sinking it down, um, you know, like and, and just tearing the bottom, uh, um, uh, a buoyant alternative like something like coyote, coyote, mm -hmm. isn't going to really be suitable, so to speak. You know, uh, I would imagine. I mean, it depends on how much you want to split hairs. I'm sure you could sink coyote down. Plenty of people do. Yeah. It's a great material for shrimps and stuff, but it's it's buoyant. Well, as an example, so I mentioned Edward, excuse me, Ed Ward earlier on as one of my influences for the intruders and stuff. So the original intruder he used to tie. Um, uh, this is before composite loops or any of that stuff, which Jerry French came up with. We'll say in the last sort of five to ten years, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, approximately something like that. But what Ed Ward used to do was he used to use deer hair and proper deer belly hair, etc., like you'd use for your your um, Delbergs, etc., yep. and would uh, spin a collar of that. 
and he would even use he'd leave the stub ends at the bottom basically so he wouldn't trim them all neat so he'd have the collar flare up and he'd leave the stub ends there and he knows that when he then wraps a, um, a collar of the uh, ostrich around it it ain't going nowhere it's going to stand up beautifully but he'd be tying those on a steel tube oh like a bottle tube which will get to tubes um just yep, quickly, yep. yep. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, so, but yeah, I understand what you're saying. In other words, it's going to give it the weight, so that's going to offset the buoyancy of the deer hair, so it's going to allow it to sink down, basically, but it's not going to rock it down at 100 miles an hour. Yeah. Um, well, I was mentioning coyote. Do you, is coyote a, a common material for um, for spay, spay flies? Um, it, it is in some. I personally don't use it that much. Um, I've only ever, um, and I, I must say, I haven't bought any of the stuff. I think you've got some in your shop, don't you? I certainly um, do. Yeah, and look, I haven't bought any. Um, the last patch I bought was not from you. It was some years ago, and I think sometimes we get the arsehole batch um, from certain suppliers. Um, yeah. And yeah, they, they those were uh, – that's what I had. It wasn't very good. Um, oh, it's a, it's a massive variety in coyote, like a, as far as, uh, you know, coyote um, across the across the back or, or belly hair. Uh, yeah. You know, the, even the flanks are very different to, to the very coarse sort of um, – I don't know what the name for it is, but the strip across the top of the spine. Um, you know, that, that, that some suppliers will just send that stuff through. And my supplier does too, but I just cut it out. I just throw it out. You know, it's gone. Yeah. But well, um, it's, it's the tiny patch I had. So, I mean, it was more like I was just, oh, I'll test some of that and see how it goes. And I sort of didn't really pull that out of the pack and give it a good look, um, which did, is what I now do. <laughs> did, you know, did you know that um, EP br- um, fox, Foxy Brush is coyote? Yeah. It's not fox. I, didn't, I did not know it was coyote. There yeah. you go. If you if you Google, I mean, I learned this from someone pointed this out to me. I had a customer when I was um, time flies commercially who was um, working for EP, you know, and we had some lengthy discussions in regards to stuff, which helped me with the um, material selection for, for for game changers and 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 the brushes with beast brushes as well. Yep. Anyway, that's beside the point. But one of the most um, riveting things that and and he pointed out to you can Google it. Like there's a there's an article of a guy who was who I can't remember what it is. It, it'd take a little bit of a a deep dive to Google, but um, there's a there's an article or, or a blog or something like that, or a magazine even I think an online magazine that talks about uh, the interaction between Enrique Puglisi and um, and this guy I can't remember his name, yeah. and they were talking about it, and they wanted that buoyancy in, in the collar, like a like a deer hair collar if you like it, uh, and they weren't getting it from Fox. Fox was sinking like a stone, you know. So it was yeah. um it was the coyote, you know, which is um pretty interesting I thought. It's um, interesting that they decided not to actually put that in the name in any way, though. Like, I wonder why they said no. Nah, we'll use. Oh, I think it's. A, I think it's a red herring, mate. To be honest with you, but um. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, I mean, the um EP, I believe the brushes they get they get made in Mexico. Um, you know, like a a, a I mean, acquiring code is going to be much easier as well. But I, I'm sure they wouldn't compromise that just for the sake of um, ease of supply. It's more about the properties of the material. I mean, fox is, is, excuse me, is relatively easy to come across as well. But I mean, you can see it in the in the in the guard hairs of that of that brush and so that. I mean, you've got um, some foxes like um, like like marble fox or um, uh, I mean, arctic fox doesn't have the um, black guard hairs. Uh, silver no. fox, I suppose, but then it's too black. Um, yeah. But um, some of the foxes have got black guard hairs, but nothing like um, nothing like coyote. Coyote's got are really nice like all the way down the flank of those animals has got a really nice black guard hair in amongst the um, under fur it's um it's it's ideal it's, it's you can if you if you saw coyote if you had a patch of coyote and you looked at those foxy brushes you'd see exactly what i mean it stands out like um coyote balls you know 
you know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's a heap of materials I, I noticed that. Uh, I mean, what's another one? Um, uh, you know, like uh, um, stuff like uh, peccary and uh, and badger and uh, even muskrat and, and black bear. All these, all these um, northern uh, northern Americana sort of um, species, I guess you could yep. say. Um, I've, used, I've used black bear, um, and which I almost felt. I mean, there's, there's a certain point where I kind of it probably plucks at my most my, my I don't know most sensitivity strings or something. And I go, I hope this thing didn't die just for the sake of some flies. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I hope that it was sort of because um, I eat black bear over there apparently, which I kind of well, I hope this was sort of you know it was at least consumed for a, a decent purpose kind of thing. I don't know, yeah. and, and, but. But then, I mean, they, like, tag, they tag out there. Like, I mean, there's a, there's a, um, I believe, I'm sure there's poachers and illegal hunting for it. But I believe there's a, uh, a certain degree of responsible, um, responsible harvesting there. Yeah, sustainable harvesting. Yeah. Black bear, black bear is one of those ones that that stands up like, um, like you know, you've got bloody hair gel in it. Like it's, it's, uh, it's a very rigid hair when it when it's flared up and, and sort of spun in a dubbing loop. Um, yeah. Right. Okay. I've done muskrat. I used to swear like when I was, uh, if I tie summer flies that I want to swing, um, and a muskrat's buoyant as well, like that's all like waterproof fur. When I say Is that, it? it repels water. It's not hollow or anything like that, but it's very, um, uh, what's the word? Um, well, as I said, it repels water. So there's sort of, you know, when they get out of the water, they're almost dry straight away. Like they, they don't have anything sort of, I think it's the oils and all that sort of stuff in it. Right. Um, that sort of repel water. So it has a tendency to be a bit, again, like you were saying, um, not like it's not like a cork floating it obviously but it, it's it just slows down that sink rate if you're trying to sink something down a bit it sort of just maintains a bit of buoyancy so it gives you a nice slow sink rate almost a bit um, neutral buoyant almost you know what i mean yeah um, okay yeah so uh, i use that in a lot of my summer flies so if i tie summer flies that i want to fish say new zealand small um and i can only manage to find muskrat in like three colors which is olive brown and black um, I've never found it in sort of a much past that. I mean, and that's from a, a person I found it overseas. Right. In, okay. In the UK, yeah. And interesting um, and, to be able to. It's just interesting to be able to dye a, uh, a such a water repellent um, yeah. product. I mean, I, I dye all the bucktail that comes through here, and it's yep. um, and if it's got if it's got too much, you know, lanolin for for back of a, lack of a better term yep. in it. It, the dye just won't strike. It, it repels the hold. Yeah, yeah, it repels the solution that holds the dye, which means it won't strike. So it's um, yeah, very interesting. I wonder whether that. I mean, that might. I mean, I could have actually just uh, answered my own question or answered a question in my own head there. Basically, I was just sitting there going, "Well, I wonder whether that actually strips all the oil out in order to be able to do that. Like they might put something through the fur in order to be able to dye it properly." Yeah, there's there's plenty would... of there's plenty of products to do that. There's um, yeah. there are some pretty gnarly products that you can use to. Uh, to really strip a lot of the um, repelling features of, of the hair out, yeah, um, yeah. but it comes at an expense at, at a cost. You know, it, it, um, you know, you like bucktail. I mean, many people have, I'm sure have felt bucktail. It feels like straw, but it's mm. got a nice, even bright color to it. You know, sometimes there's a bit of it. There can be a bit of a compromise to quality hair and and uh, and dye quality. You know, so yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I don't think it, I think it's commonly known or even even considered sometimes, you know. But I guess it depends on how far you want to split hairs with your fly tying. Well, no, exactly. I mean, look, I've 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 bought some absolutely awful bucktails before in my time as a prime. I mean, as, as a really easy focus piece to look at there, I've I've bought some absolutely awful bucktails in my time. That I've I've since just gone like I shouldn't have bought. It was just a waste of money. Um, all the ones I bought from you, and this is not to give you a plug, but I will. 
um, <laughs> have all been really good. And you, you say they're all handpicked, and I kind of went, well, you got to take that as gospel. And uh, for anyone out there listening, they are very good. Um, yeah, and, thanks, I'm glad you like them. No, well, look, I mean, and that's ironically, I do use, you You know, you, you mentioned right way back in the uh, beginning of this when we've been talking about what would be the Clouser equivalent of um, in a spay fly. I actually have done on a number of occasions, and I'm, I'm taking some down south with me, I tie them in quite bright colours. So normally um, I'll use a combination of rabbit fur, bucktail, on a tube fly. So um, the bucktail, I t- there's a fella called... Um, He's, I think he's, he's left social media. I think he was unwell. Uh, Toby Hedden, I believe. I'm sorry, Toby, if, if, or if anyone listens, I get his name wrong. Um, he's, he's from uh, Norway, I believe. And he was tying this thing called a spade, sorry, a bucktruder. So he was using bucktail and basically making an intruder. So he would tie it forward and then push it all back. And bucktail, of course, stands up nice like a perfect little umbrella over the back of the fly. And I've done that yeah. for a couple of the smaller flies that I tie, which these are still probably in total length about three and a half inches. Um, and all I do is I finish the the heads off with just a, um, a very simple composite loop of rabbit fur and UVI stubbing mixed in with it just to finish the fly off. Yeah, right, okay. I'm going to get to the composite loops. I'm pretty keen because there's been a few um, uh, definition issues in regards to these. But... Uh, um, I could run through the feathers as well that um, that gets used. But, uh, I mean, we've been through the ostrich and, and the rear and things like that as well. But, uh, you yeah, know, yeah, heron heron feathers and uh, fe- ringtail pheasants and obviously things like cheeks with the guinea fowl and, uh, and teal and stuff. Um, but let me ask you about the um, the, the sensitive topic of, um, of the jungle cock. <laughs> how, uh, how, how important is that? in a fly to you uh or is it ornamental and traditional more than anything else i think it's like about 80 percent of the latter um it's 70 80 percent something like that i think it's nice to have those um because you obviously have the, the natural sort of yellowy orange and then the black surround with the eye you know the white and the gray of the mm-hmm. eye basically those jungle cock eyes um look really nice against i mean any fly i mean uh, i mean as far as you know suitable i wouldn't put them on like a surf candy or anything but hey you never know um i think it's more of a um it's just to break up a uh, like if you had a pretty solid colored fly and i'm not saying a solid fly but just a solid color i think that those eyes at the front just act more like a trigger point i don't think they necessarily simulate an eye um and a lot of the times, I mean, if you're tying them in for, you know, people, I've seen a lot of at least traditional type spay flies where they're shrimps or apparently shrimps. And the eyes are up the front. I'm like, that thing's swimming through current front ways. That's pretty impressive. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. They're not that strong a swimmer, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, backwards would seem so you'd have them out the back, if anything, I would say. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a bit more ornamental. Um I mean, they're, they're, what's his, ascites, they're ascites listed species, so they're endangered and all that sort of thing. So is um, Rhea. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Hence why it's so hard to come by, right? Um, yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I think... It, I, sorry, Nick, you going? No, I was just going to say, I mean, it, it is one of, like, I, I've had, I've only ever owned uh, or, or come across one um, jungle fowl cape, as it was called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, it was... Um, Split left, right, and center. It was very much a C grade cape. So, very, yeah. If you come across it, it's very hard to find it a 
uh, ethically acquired. Uh, second of all, quality, you know. But um, my my thoughts on it are that uh, you know that that ochre color that's in there. Uh, in my mind, like every time I fish with them, you know, like it it seems to pop. I've never I've never seen a, a synthetic jungle cock eye do what a normal jungle cock eye does. I I, I don't I. Uh, funny, I had this discussion online once, and then and Bob Popovic joined in on it. Actually, it's, uh, mm-hmm. um, I I did a hollow with it, and this guy says I like to um I like to coat them in UV resin first, and then stick them on. I go, well, you, in my opinion, you're you're undoing everything that 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 well the big part of why I want to use it, and um, uh, and the reason is for me is that I like you tying like a hollow fly as an example. You've mm-hmm. got all this perfectly uh, carefully pre-tensioned material that's tied forward and 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 carefully sprung back to a point where you, where you want it to go so it's it's you know with the dam thread in front of it mm-hmm. what why would you stifle that movement i mean you, you you're um you are you are reverse tying it not to not only to get the um the profile but also to get the action of that of that material that that wants to go forward but it's getting forced to go back so it's um it's resisting the water that's flowing over it if you were then to like um to, to glue eyes to that to that bucktail past that thread dam, to me it just seems like such a a, a waste of what well why do we we're just undoing what we what we did uh, a yeah. feather a feather in that place and it doesn't necessarily need to be a jungle cock it could be you know it could be you know it could be it could be pheasant or or whatever you know a, te- a teal flank uh, it could be uh-huh. anything but the idea of having excuse me something something moving in the water as as naturally as as JC, it seems to be um, uh, it, it's it's of it's of pretty good appeal to me for for flies like um, flat wings like um, I think that they go they they meld well with the design there you know they got a mm-hmm. um, you know flat wings can be tied without glue um, mm-hmm. and 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 you could tie the jungle cock on like that as well I think there's a I think there's a place for it I think like you said I think um, for the internet aesthetically. You know they 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 look good and they look traditional. I think you know like uh, probably as you mentioned there, eighty percent of the reason is for that that traditional aspect of it and aesthetics of it for a lot of people. But I think um I think when used you know like I mean putting them on a putting them on a surf can like you said like you know what are we doing here you know like you're gonna no, exactly. you're gonna yeah. you're gonna coat it with uh, with epoxy. I mean you're you're only doing it for the look of it and that's and that's cool you know but um you know it's 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 not. Like I've like I've said before in the in this thing, like I, I can't I can't begrudge completely the aesthetics of fly tying. Like people that like to do the sculpture, but yeah, don't don't preach that it's a it's the latest and greatest fish catching machine when you're going to epoxy over jungle cock. If you know what I'm saying. No, well, that's so, it. I mean I mean I've used the uh, we'll call it the synthesized version of the fake ones before, mm. and you're dead right. They, there's I mean it's like anything, uh, and we've uh, I've heard you say this time time again. I 100 agree. There's nothing that simulates. You can't give us or get a synthetic that will perfectly simulate the natural material ever it just doesn't do it i mean that's why they've not created artificial feathers yet for hackling they just don't do the same thing they can't they could probably create you know it would be more it would be tougher be more durable uh the color would never fade out of it if that was the situation um all that sort of stuff it would be perfectly good for it but they they just can't nail it because they can't get those beautiful neighbor like tapered tips which I mean, these are you know you would need a millionth of a millimeter in tapering at the end of them. You just can't achieve that. Oh, it's impossible. That's like yeah. um, you know, like I mentioned in regards to the crafter on the last show. You know, like it's um, mm. I I got a product I don't know about three years ago. 
I looked at it. It's pretty popular in the States. It's called that that squimpish fiber. And that guy yep. seems like a, a good bloke and the blends are great and all that sort of stuff. But, uh, like, you know, given the opportunity bet- between looking at that and um, and Nyat, far out, man. I, I, I mean, nothing wrong with – no, no, not knocking squimpish fiber, but, I mean – Night just leaves it for dead for that reason, you know. It's it's just um it's like it's the same length, and it's tapered, you know, and yeah. it's natural. It, it's um yeah. it's got all that natural flow in it. Whereas um the squibbish fiber just is just pretty much seemingly to me from the samples I've got in my room right now, look like um craft fur, you know, yeah. like a, yeah. a really boutique and a really fancy and 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 I, like you know it's expensive, but I mean yeah. like I can see the price in it. That's for sure, you know. Like I I would imagine that stuff would be very hard to manufacture. But yeah. it's um, but it's it's such a good. I mean, it's a, it's it's a very good synthetic. But and I've seen them reverse tie with it and try to ho- do hollow flies with it. And I think that was the 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 crux of the search for that material was to find a synthetic to do hollow flies with. Mm. I don't know if you've seen much of it in that regard, but it just doesn't seem to 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 do it. You know. Um, no, I mean, and that's that, that's the, as I said. I mean, this is it, even you could argue. I mean, to a certain point. I mean, like we, you mentioned that faux bucktail. Um, that was oh, I, I saw disaster. That, I saw that stuff and just went fucking pass. Sorry, I don't. I'm not interested at all in that. It was awful. Yeah. Uh, but and I mean, like, there would have been people who just gone, oh, that's me. Excellent. Don't have to buy bucktails anymore. And that that's all they'll use, and they'll probably still catch fish on it. But so th- there's that appeal, obviously, to the person who's using it more so as well. I mean, there's there's qualities in all the materials. I'm sure that you handle and you tie yourself that you go, I want a certain aspect of these um you know the, the, there must be a certain quality and a certain you know points xyz you know one two and three that, are, that they must have these if they don't have that i'm not going to use it because it, yeah. it won't do that it won't achieve the certain results that i want exactly. um, i mean and that's like as an example uh, like i mentioned before and, and i'll give away this this little hack um for ostrich so when i mentioned before like rear is a very fine version of you know, for want a better term fine version of, uh, of ostrich sorry the problem with a lot of the commercial grade stuff that you buy, uh, like if you go to any of your local tackle shop that sells fly tying gear and they've got a chunk of ostrich in there, they often get a huge feather, like the the worst one, the, the worst ostrich feathers to use are the giant big ones, or we're talking the, the longest feathers on the bird. Mm. What you want are the drabs, you want the small ones. They've got the smaller, finer pointed, and we're talking very fine points, like almost rear quality. Yeah, um, they call them, they call them spay plumes, right? Uh, well, yeah, just ostrich drabs, like small drabs, like no bigger than about sort of 15 to 20 centimetres. Yeah, like about to say, yeah, like yeah. Eight, eight to nine inches, so, you know. Like, exactly, uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, so, uh, but I mean, what the, you'll often get from you know, various suppliers, at least, you know, who are just sort of supplying anything to the industry, they'll give you just the longest feather and they'll just cut it up into chunks and go, there you go, 10 bucks a pack, go for it. There's some ostrich for you. But the actual, what do you call this, the barbules? No, that's not right, but the, the actual feather itself the bit that you want to tie is massively long like it's uh yeah it might be it's fat too yeah that's what i was gonna say it's well and truly over fluffy yeah so, yeah now what you can do now even some drabs you'll find that like towards the top of the drabs those ones which i'm for the seven eight inch ones those ones will be towards the top will be really good some of them will be a bit too short but sort of an inch or two down from the feathers where they will start getting really usable but as you get towards the bottom of the feather, they start getting long and a bit fluffier because that's probably where the, the bird wants its warmth and all that sort of stuff and blah, blah, blah. So what I found is if you use, uh, and I'm not suggesting to go and raid your missus, um, your wife's hair conditioner collection that she might have in your shower, but I found that my, uh, my wife happened to have a very gentle, 
um, and I guess it's pH balanced and it's probably got jojoba and all this wonderful weird shit in it to make her hair feel fantastic and avocado and various other things in it. Um, but you just literally with, uh, like you wet your feather under a tap and just with a bit of conditioner, just rubbed over your hand and just rub it over the feather and leave it sit for about a minute. You go and wash it off under the tap, thoroughly wash it, thoroughly, I mean, really, really thoroughly rinse it off and make sure there's no more of that sort of conditioner feel left in it because it almost feels a bit oily, a bit greasy. Mm. Make sure that's all gone. And then I then go and normally blow dry the feather just on a very, like, a, not on the hot setting at all, because like on the colder setting it is. Just blow dry the feather and you look at what happens to the feathers after that. All of that fluff just goes away and you're just left with these beautiful, long, tapered fibers. Yeah, cool. Yep. It's, a, it's a good hack when you can't find uh, your nice drabs. That's so a good hack. Yeah. So I sort of, I just, uh, like, as I said, I found some in a shop. This is when I was trying, this is when I sort of kicked this all off uh, with time intruders and all that sort of thing and went, why can't I find any good ostrich anywhere? Um, and I started finding it in the shops and went, well, this stuff's just too fluffy. It's too fat, too long. The length isn't a problem. I can always just cut off the bits that I need. Like if I need half the feather, I just cut off half the feather and go, well, I've lost half the feather. So what? That's just how I have to have it. Um, and then, as I said, then you just brush this conditioner on and voila. But don't leave it on there for too long because, I mean, like anything, all those natural materials are susceptible to being uh, burnt, I guess you could say, by using – and conditioner is a chemical, so it's, you know, it's not um, – I'm not, I'm not sure exactly sure what it does to your hair. I don't have any hair, so I don't have to worry <laughs> <laughs> It's probably um, because of that conditioner, mate. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I mean. Don't leave it on there, that's for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a, that was a handy little thing I found. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying try that on any other materials like uh, any furs or anything like that. Tend to leave the furs alone. But for ostrich, that was in order to get those nice, you know, unfluffy um, ostrich feathers. That that seemed to work quite well. It used to take yeah. the fluff out of it. So yeah, it's good. That's that's a good tip, mate. Hmm. Um, handy hints. Have you got a um, have you got a timepiece in front of you, Nick? Like a clock. Yeah, something like that. Nine thirty. Yes. Okay, mate. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you that. Um, well, I want to. We we're gonna we we're gonna have to leave our tubes or composite loops because we're coming up to two hours. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I told you and, I can talk, dude. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know you can talk, mate. I uh, I've I've tried to let you go a lot of times, and I've tried to curb, but I've also um been guilty of uh, waffling on too, mate. But so uh, don't don't feel too bad. But um um. Which one, mate? Which one do you want to talk to? We've got, let's say we've got 15 minutes to talk about one or the other. Uh, composite loops, I think. Composite loops. Uh, I'm like going to say 10 different. minutes, mate, because I guarantee you we're going to go over 10 minutes. Okay. All right. So, okay. So, mate, Fine. composite loops. Why would you do them and what are they? Composite loops, uh, to me, um, are a way of constructing a, um, a collar for the front of my intruders specifically that I use them for. Um, so, uh, composite, so it, it's a composite. It's a mix of different materials and all um, sort of aiding and abetting each other, so to speak. So you're using a combination of materials that one will prop, all mixing together, as I said. So you're um, like, depends how you tie them, but um, the way I tie them, I actually stack it. So basically, I have materials underneath. So normally, you start with something that you want, something that's going to act as a foundation for it. So in my case, I use iced up. Let's just say in this case, it's, it's a dubbing, but it's iced up. I use a lot of time or... Um, uh, Fusion Dub is another one I use. Um, so I use Ice Dub. I then the next material I use is going to be the um, 
the bulk of the fly side, I might use say rabbit as an example, just as an easy example. Or Nick, Nick, before you um, before you explain this, I'm just thinking. I know I know what you're talking about. I'm just thinking that if someone's hearing this for the first time, they probably don't understand. They they may not even know what a dubbing loop is. Now you talk. Let me just explain this just quickly before you go on. So don't try not to lose your spot there. But um, for those who like Nick gave a good clue of it right there. It's for building collars. Um, if you're relating it to non-spay flies, you could do this with with your heads of of, of brush flies. I mean, a composite loop would be brilliant for a brush fly. Um, some of the more famous um, pop fly tires, like Ben Wiley, he does them on almost all of his um, bulkheads and and hollows that you see. I could be butchering that, but a lot of them anyway are done with composite loops. That's how it gets a really nice head shape on his. Um, but essentially, we're, we're building we're building a, a head or a collar, okay, yep. as as it would relate to the general fly like time community. For you with your spade flies, you're building a collar, uh, and 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 when you just list, I'm so I know I know we're running out of time, but if you're listening to you talking about prop materials and things like that as well, and using these materials that work in a symbiotic fashion, mm-hmm. if you can if you can take your mind back to the beginning of the podcast and listen how these intruders are built. So they don't flatten out completely. They need that. They need that stability or that in, that that structure, uh, or need to be engineered so they don't collapse in the water, so to speak. That's, it. Yeah, that's yeah, what that umbrella. That's, exactly. That, yeah, exactly. That's this is what Nick's about to explain what he wants from a composite loop. But that's essentially what a composite loop is. It's it's a you know it's a loop that you're made in your thread. You use a, a dubbing loop tool to to mm-hmm. to keep it away, and then you you finish your thread off, and then you 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 build it. You 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 put the materials in that loop. You twist it up. And then you wind it around like it's a normal brush. So, um, yep. yeah, that's that's it in a nutshell. So please continue to how you do your your composite loops. Yep. So I mean, uh, a typical one, as I said. So I start with, uh, I mean, Jerry French described it as scrim. So you would have uh, the dubbing. So that's the foundation for my loop. So I have the dubbing um, laid out, and I literally um, there's a whole. YouTube is going to be your best resource if someone wants to see this and then look up Jerry French dubbing loops uh, or composite loops. Sorry. Um, and uh, that'll give you a really good visual if you're one of these people who needs to visually sort of see this. I'm just um, writing that down now too. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's, he'll show his his way of doing it. It's not the way I do it exactly, but more or less, it's exactly the same. It's a good um, starting point. Yep. Very much. I know it's a it's a it's a very good way of uh, and an endpoint as well. He he ties some amazing flies. Okay. Um, so uh, I use that, and so then uh, I then go radio. So the 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 main bulk of my collar what the main material is going to be is the next material I use so let's say for argument's sake i'm going to use a rabbit fur or a fox fur or something like that something that's going to be the the main color like the main say if it's olive it's going to be an olive rabbit fur or olive arctic fox or something like that this is then cut and then neatly sort of spread out it's not super thick i neatly spread this out across my loop uh, across my dubbing sorry then as i mentioned before i did earlier uh, earlier on about the lady amherst um i've got those, those are all individual filaments, so I literally separate all of those, and people go, ah, fuck that, I'm not going to do that. It's like, well, it looks good. That's why I do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then I then basically individually place all of those throughout the, the, the loop that I'm doing. I then, um, I normally have, um, I'm a big fan of, uh, and this is where I came to you about talking about things like those, um, the, the composite loop brushes, which we still have to look at at some point. Yeah. Uh, and, but... Then I will then have a synthetic material come into it, um, and this is one of the like you got the natural propping abilities of Amherst will help with it. So Amherst will actually help prop things up, or any feather for that matter. Um, 
then uh, but Lady Amber specifically does really well with that and also swims beautifully in the water. Um, I will then come in with things like um, your, um, oh, what's it called? Um, it is a hairline product, Polar Chenille. Thank you. Um, oh, yeah. Polish, yeah, Polar Chenille. I will literally, so that's on a, um, what would you call cord. it? It's on, it's on a cord. Yeah, I actually cut it off the cord right at the base. So it's, it's a fine strand of, it's a very fine, very sparse um, yeah. flash. There's a, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and it's normally got like, it will have, say, it might be, one of my favorites is um, copper and olive, or olive and copper or something like that, they call it. Um, and so it will have, the olive will be the main crux of the color, but it'll have these olive UV strands sort of mixed in through it. And so I cut those off and then I stack that across the, the material of it. So the, the on top of the rabbit and the Amherst and the dubbing that I've already put down. Nick, before you go further, can I ask you, are you, are you building this on a flat surface that you pick up with um, like a clip or something like that to, to put into the dubbing loop? Your dubbing loop is good, uh, as in your your um, the way I do them. If you can pick it up all in one with your fingers, I don't use a clip or anything like that. But there are clips available, and they do work very well. Um, well, then how do how do you um how do you lay out say your, your ice dub and, and maybe some fox or rabbit, and then then put in your Amherst every twenty mil, say or something like that, uh, and and keep opening up that loop to put it back in, you know, without the other stuff falling out. So I, I've, uh, you can you can buy these things, but I made my own um, out of a bit of what do you call it? You know the foam that you use, like clay cell foam that you use for making things like your gurglers and all that sort of stuff. Just your little, yep. the thin stuff. I had um, a thin sheet of plastic that I glued onto the top of that, so I've got a smooth surface to work on. It's about seven eight inches long, probably about four inches wide, and I literally just make my loop on top of that. And then uh, I'll have to film this one day for you so you can see what I'm talking about. And um, I make my loop on top of that. Um, and as I said, I do those stacks exactly hey, like I said. Hang on. I'm just going to I'm just gonna break it down because I, 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 I was ready to glance past that, but I thought, well, I'm doing an injustice to the listeners. <laughs> we're, way, we're, we're going over to 10 minutes for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so you've got this you've got this flat surface and, and you, you said your words, I make my loops over that. Now, um, this would indicate to me that either – your, this flat surface is up level with your hook and your vise, and you've got the thread extended off the hook over this flat surface, and you're building the materials up over that. Or you build it on this flat surface somewhere else, and you pick it up with something that's like a clip or something, um, or or you you know you some way of holding these arranged materials to then put in the dubbing loop. Exactly. With, oh, that's what you do, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I put this on my desk, and my vice is away. It's got the dubbing loop made, ready to go. So I've made the loop and the dubbing. Yep. I've prepped. I've prepped it with wax. So I do use dubbing wax on my dubbing loops. That's. I think that's quite important. Um, I have this just sitting in front of me, and I got you know materials all around me, obviously that I want to use. And I go right, start building. So I start my dubbing, body, Amherst, flash, dubbing over the top again. Yep. That's all then, basically. And as I said, the whole thing might be about, like, by the time I've got my stack done for a, a normal-sized fly that I tie and a, a collar that I'm about to wrap, the whole thing might be top to bottom, I'm going to say, about 60 mil. Mm -hmm. Okay, Wide. worth of material. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Uh, and all facing normally, if I am if I go to pick it up with my right, all the materials are facing to my left, right? Yep. I then, with my fingers, open... The dubbing loop up, so I literally mm -hmm. put my forefinger and middle finger in and open. Wait, it up. wait, you missed, you're missing a step. So we, we all we already went over it, but to include in these steps, mm -hmm. you'll then you got your materials laid on the on the arranged. Yep. You, you'll then 
uh, cl- uh, clip them, like uh, um, gather them together in, 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 in one way. And that can be, there's several tools to be able to do that with a clip, but, yep. um, but essentially some sort of clip, then you'll open up your dubbing loop and then please continue from there. Yep. So basically I open up my dubbing loop, I put the material in, yep. I, pu- I put it all the way over. So basically there's only about a centimeter approximately sticking out one side and obviously most of the materials hanging out the other side. Yep. Close my loop, so I pinch it off, put my dubbing spinner in the back, just as a habit, basically. And then I will, because I don't want much of the, the base to be involved in this. I don't want the base, uh, like that centimetre side of it. I don't yep. want that to be in there. So I normally trim that back to about half that. So we'll say there's about five mil left by the time I'm done, okay? Yep. Um, of trimming all the back side of it off. That's once, yeah. So for people who don't know, like, I mean, you can you can put, dub, you just Google dubbing loop. You'll see how that's done there. Like it's um yeah. the difference between a dubbing loop and a composite loop is just the materials used, really. Hundred percent, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that most people do that. Let's say they do fox or something like that. They'll put fox into a loop and then they'll trim it up on the back of it. So you're just trimming all the butts to make them all even and all that sort of stuff. Yep. So do that. Spin it up. So it doesn't matter what dubbing tool you've got. I mean, there are good ones out there and there are shit ones out there. Hopefully you've got a good one. Spin uh, it up. Okay, we got two great ones at um, beastbrushes.com. Not just saying. Yeah. And yep. you do, and they sound like they're heavy enough too. I think you said they're twenty something grams, which sounds like they would be heavy enough. So well done. Yeah, um, there's twenty grams there. Yeah, there you go. I got another one I'm about to load up. Probably by the time this podcast comes out, so just being lazy. But keep going. Bearing? Has it got bearings in it? No, no, no. It's nothing like that. It's just uh, it's that like, that bell shaped one. Like it's a one. I it's one I fed when I was when I first had. It was it's a more basic version, but it's just um, gotcha. it's only a couple of bucks, and it's uh, mate, it's done a, done a million dubbing loops for me, and I thought I'd get them in. Anyway. Sorry. <laughs> Please continue. Nick. What's going on? Well, folks, it seems like we've lost Nick. I don't know if you can hear me, Nick. Um, just going to write this time down and I'll edit this bit out. All right, we're back. We lost Nick there for a second in the middle of the composite loop uh explanation but look nick i think i think we're maybe we've been talking we've been talking i've been chewing year off for over two hours but uh um maybe we've been talking for a while there we might we might wrap this up i think um but look i think we get the gist of it mate it's uh we were we're in the middle of just about say spinning it up so we just you just basically twist it then um palm it around the shank and like any sort of head there and um yeah bob's your uncle i'll give you what just the, the final tip that I will give regarding composite loops. Yep. Once you spun it up, wet it, have a thing of water on hand, jar of water, whatever, and wet it and fold it back so it becomes like a hackle, and then wrap it. Oh, okay. Yep. Makes it makes a world of difference. So uh, when the when the fly dries, I mean, put it on. I brush it all back. I then brush it all forward, then brush it all back, and then just let it sit. And once it dries, it'll make the difference. It actually tightens onto the head as well as it dries, like around your shank, sorry, whatever you tie onto. Oh yeah, cool. Mm. One one last question: You ever wind it onto glue? Nope. No, neither do I. It's a yeah, good to I did, know. I, I did try it once, and it was a monumental cock up. So no, just to see yeah. what it did, and I went, oh, that's why you don't do it. So no, Fair enough. Not. Just the water works perfectly. Well, Nick, uh, mate, I want to say thanks for making the time, and um, and good luck down at Yucca Beam. But uh, we're gonna we're gonna get this uh, show on the road, mate, and um, I'm gonna let you go. No, thanks very much for the chat tonight, Chris. It's been good fun. No worries. Uh, and anyone who wants to know more about um, spay flies, just message Nick at 2 o'clock in the morning. That's the best time. 
often respond to. <laughs> if you don't get old Nick, just try Volti. That'll um, then you'll get through. <laughs> okay. Well, look. Um, thanks again, Nick. Uh, we'll wrap this up, and um, folks, join us again next time on the Intermediate Vice. Cheers, guys. <laughs>